Similarly, on a design level, I can see those faces you're making, Ryan. <laughs> I'm just going to say base. nothing. I'll let you guys have this all to yourself. Then should have been in the base game, then you wouldn't know any different, Ryan. <laughs> Welcome to the Kindred Spirit Podcast, a show all about the board game Spirit Island. Here we'll talk about analytics and strategies within the game, as well as a plethora of other topics that can be found within it. Today's episode is a special one because we have a fun guest on the show, the man who started it all, Eric Royce. Hey. The Eric Royce, what up? Welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you. All righty then. Hey! He said it! He said it! He said it! <laughs> How could I not? You have to. Come on. It's just, at this point, it's expected. The podcast ex- compels me. Right. We have Eric Royce here today. This is insane. I know. This is full circle, man. This is great. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank, thank you for having this podcast. You. I'm kind of like somewhat nervous energy scatterbrained here. So don't mind me if I'm kind of just like, kind of, you know, kind of like deep breath in, deep breath out. Keep it professional, Ryan. That's right. We are a professional enterprise and we want to make sure that we have the most curated content for our listeners. How about that? All righty. So, Eric, I'm so glad to have you on. Can't wait to learn so many rambunctious facts that we've never heard of before. But while I have you here for this brief span of, you know, yeah, probably several hours, I want to make sure that I make the most efficient use of time here. So I made sure that I searched my mental database. I did a deep dive of my cavernous heart. And I wanted to make sure I found the most poignant, the most saturated, important, and vital questions at the absolute first. So- Trim the facts only the means further ado nothing but the best for eric royce what is your favorite food favorite color what are they i must know (laughs) (laughs) favorite food Uh, judging by the available evidence my favorite food is probably hot chocolate given how much of it i go through Uh, seriously i like i order it in five pound tubs Um, (laughs) buy by the gross (laughs) yeah the place i order it is a restaurant supply company but uh, yeah yeah (laughs) wow yeah, it's, right on. Um, for it's me, shrimp. Age, but, you know. That's for me. I love seafood. shrimp. Yeah, shrimp and lobster, man. Oh, you when you have like a lemon spritz right on top. Remember mm. when Laura made you a lemon shrimp pasta, Ryan? <laughs> She put a, like six whole lemons in there. It was very lemon. Yeah, we had a lemon pasta one time. And so <laughs> she put, you know, actual lemons in there. And when she was stirring it all up, coincidentally, all the lemons went to like one part of the pot. So when we were ladling it out, I got all the lemons. So they're all like, boy, this isn't really lemony. And I'm sitting there like, <laughs> so like just nothing but lemon my friend do you like it <laughs> you're like oh. yes when so ever since lemons make shrimp lemonade <laughs> <laughs> so every now and then we bring up lemons john's like lemons lemons favorite color my favorite color is well i don't have a single favorite color i tend to really like dark sort of jewel tones particularly around the sort of purple blue red range Ooh. Yeah. I like that. Royal blue was mine for a while, but then as I got older, it turned into a sunset orange for me. That was like, that'd be mine. Wait, John, what was your favorite food? Tacos. I'm digging tacos right now. Really? Yeah. We have like this slow cooker recipe for these like carnita tacos. They're incredible. Right on. Delicious. And your favorite color? Green. The color of life. The color of A spread of rampant green. Wait, that's my favorite, not yours. What the heck, man? Uh, It's not my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) It's my teacher spirit. There you go. That's right. Favorite superpower, go. To have or to watch in action. Ooh. 
Hey, I we're asking the question. Have, here. <laughs> but that's also a good angle that I did not think about. All right. For to have, that's a secret. Okay. Whoa. In an answer that was satisfying to nobody, I'll give you mine. <laughs> so I actually have two because two. the way okay. the first one is interpreted, if it's no. interpreted a certain way, probably the second. So the first one would definitely be to have the ability to pause time and to oh, resume no. it at will. So I could freeze time and no one else can do anything and I can just do whatever the heck I want and then hit play whenever I want to. So this has such oh practical applications. I'm late to work. Run on over to work. I'm here. Play. Oh, I'm hungry, but I have like no time because I got like a meeting in five minutes. Pause, get something to eat, whatever. Unfortunately, the capacity for evil is actually quite high because you can be like, you know what? I'm digging some KFC right now. Walk into KFC. I'm just going to steal all this stuff. Eat it. No one will know. Go to a movie theater. Be. I'm just going to pause time. Walk right on by the ticket booth and just sit down. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I love time shenanigans. Oh, it'd be great. (laughs) However, someone brought up to me the fact, though, that what if time for you never stops? So you will continue to age even in those moments where everyone else is frozen, but you aren't. So the more often in life you do this little time freezing trick, you're Mm going to age just a little bit faster, a little bit faster than everyone else does. Mm -hmm. Because for them, they were in a stasis while you were still aging just fine. And so that I am not a fan of. So if that is the rules for the first one, my second one Mm -hmm. would be to have the ability to change the focal point axis of my gravity. So I can make straight up be the gravitational pull. So I can just fly up. I can walk on a wall or something. My hero name would be free fall. So I could just Mm -hmm. go and be like zip around. Commuting would be fantastic. And it'd just be fun. Come on. Flight is awesome. So that'd be my two. If the first one can't work, definitely change where gravity is. Because that's just fun. I can't tell you my favorite, but coming close, very close to the top would be either some very close runners up or either super speed or teleportation, Mm. which are not exactly like what you just said, but are very close. I mean, come on. Teleportation, instant transmission to another spot. Bam. Instantly. Come on. That's kind of dope. Oh, it's pretty awesome. Come on. Especially when you got lots of friends living elsewhere in the country or the world. Yes. Oh, yes. Traveling. Goodness. Tell me about it. All right, Johnny boy. My favorite superhero was always Batman, so I guess my superpower would be money. That'd be my favorite. <laughs> Rich. Nice. Well, let me introduce you to something called a Roth IRA. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what kind of podcast is this? <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, okay. Let's get focused here. Let's get serious. So it's kind of funny, Eric, because there's many times I have seen your last name on a plethora of individuals. So hearing it pronounced is very common to my ears, but I've encountered people who have never actually heard your name before. And given the whole initial thing and what is this last name in your day-to-day life, what would you like to generally go by? If somebody walks up to me at a con, I'd hope they'd say, hey, Eric, nice to meet you. you know, that's Okay. Yep. Works for me. So I'm going to go with Lord Royce for this interview. So. <laughs> Don't have a lordship. Sorry about that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, so given the fact that the world's kind of in a sucky place right now, what are you up to nowadays? Oh, well, I just got my vaccine, which is going to help it. That's dope. Less. Nice. Uh, yeah. Moderna, uh, Pfizer, Johnson. Pfizer. Pfizer. Right on. Yep. That's great. Since then, I've been a little tired, but before that, I was playing a fair amount of Dance Dance Revolution with my kids. DDR? What is this, 2003? <laughs> That's around when I started playing it, and I've never really stopped. I mean, like, except for like meals and sleeping. Sure. Right? <laughs> 
good. Meals, hot chocolate. Yeah, hot chocolate. Right. That's how I keep DDR. You know, it's so. Do you have yeah, like no. the mat that you can actually like step on? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, like playing with your fingers is cheating. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> or that's not true. It's a different game. Yeah, it's really what it's it different. Is. Up until like a year or so ago, we were actually babying along like a PlayStation Two we had for twenty years or something. Wow. But it finally started dying, and so we got a replacement. Just so like the single thing that we use it for is playing Dance Dance Revolution. And that's pretty much it. But it's awesome. We still have ours and have a moment of silence for a fallen PlayStation 2. I can hear taps. (laughs) (laughs) Way too many. That's right. Yours lasted 20 years. (laughs) That's actually impressive. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, when did you get into board games? Like, obviously, you are known in our social circle. You're here because of Spirit Island. That's a board game. That's what this whole thing has started with. Which, by the way, if ever you are discontent with what we do on this podcast, technically, it's all your fault because, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, since this is a board game thing, when did you get into board games? As a kid, you know, all kids come up with games and play games. And I just sort of never really stopped. I didn't always have a focus on board games the way I have more in sort of my later adult life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a kid, I cycled through different board games, uh, role-playing games, computer games. College, I found live action, you know, LARPing, Magic Gathering. Oh, oh, yeah. What? Yeah, right. That's on. so cool. Yeah, I lean more towards the sort of narrative story style LARPs than the live action combat sort of buffer LARPing. Although I will say that like the immersion, the physicality of combat being resolved with people hitting each other yeah. as opposed to, you know, like rolling dice or rock, paper, scissors right. or what, it does provide this sense of immersion, which mm-hmm. is tricky to get elsewhere. Swear, it uh, does but, seriously yeah no it's neat and go, uh, over the last over the last if you asked me this question like 15 years ago it would have been oh yeah there's sort of like you know the theater narrative larping and then there's the mm-hmm. live action combat larping but there's a mm-hmm. lot more these days a lot more sort of subgenres and refinements and schools of thinking about it lots of different options it's neat right on which board games did you play back then oh geez like we had a whole closet i was about to say that may be a difficult question to answer <laughs> a closet with a bunch of them like mostly classic mass market games you know you're like your monopoly you're sorry you're risk yeah. Some things which are a little bit less overall everywhere culture. Like, do you remember the dungeon board game, the sort of D&D as a board game? I think so. Doing... I own Lords of Waterdeep. Does that count? There you go. So we had all of those and a bunch of more obscure ones. There was one called the Ungame, which true to its name was only. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. It was funny. Like if I'd ever been sold that one is like, hey, this is a way to get to know people. I'd be like, oh, that would be great. But then right. somebody was like, hey, this is a game. Let's play it. And I sit down. I'm like, this is a game <laughs> right so, right do you ever yeah. have hi-ho cheerio oh yeah yeah Hi-ho. oh my goodness Ooh. yeah that cootie shoots and ladders all, yeah shoots you know, and all, ladders yeah you know, all the classics and uh, sorry stratego battleship oh. yeah like you know yeah Candyland. definitely Candyland. definitely yeah, Candyland. Lo- loads of those growing up but i started steering more towards role-playing games probably hmm. around when i hit 10 one of my friends gave me a DD basic set for my birthday and nice. i was like oh this is neat it's, a gift yeah. a fine gift <laughs> Gift. Yeah. We have a thing. Fun. We have to get a Lord of the Rings Ooh. reference in every single episode. Hopefully. Oh, absolutely. But we don't acknowledge the Hobbit. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, except when you quote it. <laughs> except uh, only a couple times. <laughs> what do you find yourself playing currently? Well, the pandemic shifted that a lot, obviously. I hope Most it's not my... pandemic. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Hard. Although I know some people who picked, like, as the lockdown started a yeah. year ago, March, were like, 
Well, this seems like a great time to pick up Pandemic Legacy. Right. Or um, Plague, Inc. or Contagion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So recently, I've been doing a lot of sort of online gaming. I think I've played more games of innovation on Board Game Arena now than I ever have in person. And innovation is a game I enjoy a fair bit. So that's saying something. Ah, also, I Race for the Galaxy and some others. Spirit Island as well. You know, I play it for fun yeah. as well as for playtest. I mean, I guess. Yeah. Fine. Whatever. Yeah. Those are probably the big ones. Also, some with my kids. For a while, it was King Domino. That was Ooh. really big. But that hasn't been yeah. so much. In the last year although they now both know how to play spirit island so that's an occasional one which is the table what was their reaction to spirit island was this like a oh dad's got his chore that he's gonna do for work did they actually dig it it'd be hilarious if like guys look at this awesome game that i made sweet and then they're just like yeah but like shoots and ladders go <laughs> so the context is like both of them grew up with Spirit Island being played ambiently around them. Okay. So it was like, this is the thing that grownups do is in general, they play board games. And specifically, there's this one which comes out as often as any other game, perhaps a little bit more so. And so when I first started teaching it to them, they already knew, especially my older son, like already knew a bunch, like he could already explain to a bystander what the victory conditions were and how you're advancing through the terror levels. You only need to wow. eliminate fewer pieces in order to win. And a number of the others sort of high scale concepts of the game. Yeah. It didn't have any of the details, but it made it a lot easier just because it was sort of in their vicinity. Right. They just picked up some of it through absorption. Again, more so for my older than my younger. Mm -hmm. You mentioned RPGs. I'm guessing that's a favored one. Do you have like a list of favorites? Is there a particular genre that you find yourself going towards? Because I remember when I was starting to get into board gaming, I noticed I'm getting a lot of co-ops. I think co-op might be one of my things. And since 2017, that's when I started. But for me, a game that usually is one I'm going to like is one that's asymmetric, replayable, thematic, and co-op. Doesn't have to have those things. But generally speaking, those are like my things. I mean, and I hate co-op, so... <laughs> I know. That's one of the things that just makes no sense. John is just, just, he has the greatest game mentality. He has to have like competitive gene. You should have seen him in Quacks. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this guy was just Dude, like. Quacks and Quacks like a fun game. Bangs come out. Yeah. <laughs> I think I just don't like alpha gaming more than co-op. I mean, that's just what it is for me. But alpha gaming's a people problem, John. I know. Accentuated by poor game design, of course, but you get the idea. Sorry, back to the question. Essentially <laughs> put, I was just going to say that. So, yeah. So the question. So for role-playing games, these days I, I find myself really drawn to the low prep systems, which don't require a huge amount of upfront time investment, either by the game master to do prep, if there is a game master, or by the players to read through a huge Tome of Rules. <coughs> Root. <coughs> no, no. I don't know how much of that is just limited time as a parent means I value like those hours yeah. that much more and how much is just my taste shifting as I get older. I do still have a soft spot for some games. Earthdawn is one of them. I've been running an Earthdawn campaign for a really long time. There's a number of things it does which I really like and by this point sort of house rules. I have a campaign which has been running since third edition. <laughs> They're wow. on fifth now. So yeah, but I'm still running off my third edition house rules. So <laughs> That honestly happens. I can't tell you how many times when we will prefer to do an old edition thing Mm -hmm. where we have house rules. Settlers of Catan, oh my goodness, my family has butchered that game with house rules to keep it fresh, to keep it like enjoyable for us because we had just got such significant burnout with that game that in order to liven it up, we we're like, let's do it like this, let's do it like this. And if you saw it, it'd be like just this crazy roid-ridden Frankenstein like version that Klaus Tabor in no way meant to have exist on planet Earth. It's on fire, but it's still moving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For board games... 
I tend to like to have agency, you know, like I like a game which I can actually think about to some degree. If it's a lighter game, it doesn't need to be super deep. If it's a fast game, it can be purely tactical turn to turn. But what I don't like is sitting there while somebody else takes five minutes to take their turn and having literally nothing relevant I can think about the game. Hey, John, how about that Scythe game? We have a friend that we were playing with Scythe and he just took like 10 minute turns. And so when it came to our turn, we were like, bam, 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 done. And then it got to him and he's like, hmm. Yeah. We were just dying. Oh, dude. We were just like, oh. Yeah, he hadn't played it in a while, so. Yeah, but neither did he, so. Okay. And Scythe even has that once you're getting to the second half of your turn, the next player can start because what you're doing. Yes, yes. Which is a detail I really appreciate about it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Having that overlap is amazing. I love that. It just helps it go so much faster when any game does that. Totally dig that. Is there any games that you're not a fan of? Uh, It depends on fan. Like, I have two very different brains when I think about games. And before I realized this, it caused me a little bit of distress. Yeah. I really do enjoy playing most games. Like, Mm -hmm. if you go to my BGG ratings, you'll see there's a few games I rate two or one where I would literally Mm -hmm. rather just sit out and do nothing than play that game. Spectate, yeah. Yeah. But those are the rare exception. Most of the time, if there's a game which I would say I'm not fond of, it doesn't mean I will have a terrible time if I play this. It means Mm -hmm. I would rather play a different game. I have preferences among them. Right. But still, games are fun. Like, they're really great. And there's some games where it's like, I don't know if I ever want to play that again. Like, there was this one game where it was like a race through a cemetery with little wind-up toys. Oh. I'm not sure I ever want to play it again in my life, but that <laughs> one play was fantastic. Because uh, it did something, like, which I just never experienced before. Uh, it's like Freddy so. Cat's Cadaver Edition. <laughs> so, on the one hand, I delight in games and I love most of them. On the other hand, I'm also extremely picky. And when mm. I play many games, like the half of my brain, which sort of is the critical half for multiple versions of the word critical, will sort of be thinking about it and dissecting it and thinking like, oh, I like really like this aspect of it. But then there's this other dynamic I'm not as fond of you mm-hmm. know, and sort of going through it. There's also just a numbers game where like the more games you play, the more games you have where you could conceivably go, oh, well, this isn't bad, but I'd really rather play that other game because you've already yeah. played like, you know, 2000 mm-hmm. games or something. So there's a very big library, you know, back when I had only played, you know, maybe like maybe 100, 150 games for something to get into my top 10 percent it was competing with like you know 15 other games now it's with 100 or 150 (laughs) right makes it kind of rough so uh, i definitely agree with the sentimentality of thoroughly dislike i'm actually gonna say no versus i'd rather not but you see for me the point of board gaming is to be around the individuals who are around the table not necessarily the actual activity itself so like you said it's not like oh here's a denial of the person or something because i'm not gonna play your game because i just hate that thing but for me usually these games would be any game where king making is exceptionally prevalent i generally am not a fan only because it just doesn't feel as fulfilling anymore like that guy's about to win get him and just everyone just piles on him and well that guy screwed so the person who wins is the person who is just okay uh well i didn't get killed in the whole tirade big dust cloud of combat over there so i'm just gonna uh i guess i win so like the third or fourth person to act on the last turn was the winner because the first and second guy got taken out by everyone else and for me social deduction just doesn't i can't play one night of werewolf anymore i'm so burnt out on that game (laughs) one night of werewolf no more nights of a werewolf please social deduction games are one of those things which i like admire the design it's not even necessarily that i don't find it fun but i don't find it scratches the same itch as board games for me right it's a different activity right 
I'm curious because of how game design works. It's not necessarily a short affair. So how long have you been doing this kind of thing? Because Spirit Island is not the only one that you've designed, but it's easily the most famous because I've never heard of the others. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, Spirit Island is an outlier. Like, And the reason as many people have heard of For Science as they have is because of Spirit Island, honestly. Yeah, yeah. The board game market these days, it mm-hmm. has been getting more and more crowded. The great news for anybody working in the industry is that it's been growing like gangbusters. I don't know the latest stats over the last couple years but i know that as of i think 2019 2019 it overtook the music industry music was 9.7 billion and board games was 10.1 yeah and the hobby game industry had been growing like 20 percent year on year for five years that's phenomenal yeah but if you look at the number of games published it was growing even faster which means that the pressure on any individual designer or publisher to stand Mm. out is escalating and it's getting harder and harder for individuals even as the industry itself is thriving Mm -hmm. so trying to break in and just even be noticed is yeah you know, rough for everybody trying to do it. So when did I start? Like I said earlier, like I kind of never really stopped when I was a kid. I made up games just like kids do. Like, hey, the floor is lava. Oh, now the floor is lava with teeth. Classic. Uh, Classic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, I have a memory of making a roll and move board game when I was around seven, you know, a very standard roll the dice, do what it says. My parents recently, when they were like, you know, cleaning out some of their basement said, hey, we found this and gave me a game I had no memory of making. It was for like a school project, I think maybe or something. Yeah. Yeah. We have a few. Or maybe not. It was about the dangers of addiction. And I was like, whoa. And okay. it was another roll and move, but it was a roll and move with choices where you had like different paths you could go down. You landed uh, on heroin. <laughs> So, I got cocaine. <laughs> yeah, like, and it was choices about, are you going to go this way or are you going to go that? It was funny because, again, it was another roll and move, but I looked at it and huh. I like, oh, there's some bits and pieces here which are kind of like multiple paths is obvious enough, but then some spaces which only apply when you land on them, but then others which apply sure. whether you land on them or go past them. So you know taking a given branch is going to force certain actions. Even in those early days, you can see my preference for some level of player agency, mm-hmm. which did, you know, did not fully come to a head until later. I didn't keep designing board games all the time. When I started playing d and I was a game master. I was, you know, rolling mm. my modules. Oh, a type of game I didn't mention was uh, play-by-mail games. Back sort of before the internet became big, oh. I would oh. do, you know, those where you send in orders to somebody who has a server with an app on it, which, you know, takes everybody's orders, comes up, updates the simulation state, prints out a bunch of stuff, which they then mail back to you. There was one fantasy game called Alamaze that I played that way, I really enjoyed. And, you know, I was making up my own ones of those. And so I've been sort of making up my own games or variants thereof for basically all my life. I shifted over to thinking, hey, like, why don't I actually try and get published? I don't remember exactly when. I'd say early 2000s, maybe, or late. Mm. Yeah, probably early 2000s. Like, I have a visual memory of it, but not a temporal memory of exactly when it was. But I was playing some game which was published. I'm like, you know, I feel like my designs are as good as this. And this got published. Well, hey, I could do that. Yeah, like <laughs> not fully understanding. Like I had some understanding of this does not automatically mean I will get published. Right. Uh, I didn't realize exactly how much of a crapshoot it was in terms of <laughs> the luck of happening to be in the right place in the right time to get noticed to sort of bootstrap into attention. And it wasn't even as extreme back then as it is now. The other half of it was Andy Looney and Kristen Looney of Looney Labs. Andy Looney was always very transparent about, hey, like, so you want to make games? Here's what we did is like put out some advice. And and I played a lot of Looney Labs games back in the days. These days, my tastes have moved elsewhere, but I still am incredibly grateful to all the information put online by the Loonies about like the process of game design and making games. Like it was their information, which made me realize, oh, I want to design games. I do not want to publish games. And mm. that's a very clear division. So even when the Kickstarter, like I could do this on my own option opened up, I knew and didn't spend time and possibly, you know, a lot of heartache on going down a path I ultimately wouldn't enjoy. Mm. I'm curious, what's the process of approaching a publisher? Is it like 
go to one that you have an eye on? Is it like if I want to make my own game and I wanted to go to a publisher, what's the early process of trying to get it into the hands of someone who can make this a reality? It will vary by circumstance publisher. Like what you're trying to do is arrange a circumstance where the publisher is there observing and or playing or learning about your game at a time at a place that is good for them. So they are on board with this evaluation. Mm. And depending on things that can happen in a variety of ways, the most sort of normal or traditional way would be to you do your research so that you know which publishers are interested in which sorts of games. You then figure out, do they have a submission process? Do they even take outside of submissions? Mm. If they take them, do they want them mailed or emailed or do they want it done at a convention? And you know, look that up. If it's mailed, you write up what's called a sell sheet, which is a brief description of your game, or maybe you do a, a blurb which serves a similar functionality. You send it to them, see if they're interested. If so, then you send them more information. If they're really interested, you send them a prototype. Convention is similar, except instead of sending them stuff, you're showing or telling them stuff. Uh, you're generally trying to be respectful of their time because, you know, from your end, you might be like, oh, I have this one game and I want to pitch it to like, you know, half a dozen different publishers. But if they're taking outside submissions, they're probably dealing with, all right, here are the like 20, 30, 40, 50 submissions I'm dealing with at this con today. So you want to make sure not to interrupt their process and generally uh, like be a good partner in that regard. There are other ways you can do it. There's sort of a speed dating style events, which get done sometimes where you have like 10 designers in a room, each with their prototype at a table and in interested publishers just like, you know, have signed up, come in and like they go table to table and you have like five minutes, explain your game, tell them what it's about, next table. That's um, stressful. It is. It is yep. fantastic and exhilarating <laughs> and exhausting. Uh, <laughs> if bet. you happen to know publishers, then you can specifically reach out to them and say, hey, because the, if there's the personal contact level, you can be like, this happened for like, I had a design which was sort of in the middle stages of design, but like, you know, this would work really well in this particular game world, which this particular publisher has. Why don't I reach out to them? Because I know them socially through cons and say, hey, are you interested in taking a look? I know you don't normally take outside submissions, but we talked about like maybe doing something in the past. And if this is up your alley, I am currently at the point where I would want to know that to change the design. And they said, yeah, like next time we're hanging out at a con, you know, pull it out and we'll take a look. You know, we made it happen. And they said, oh, okay. I don't think I really want to do this in the IP, the world that we have now. But have you considered going in this direction with it? I'm like, oh, no, I hadn't. So like nothing's happened with it, but maybe something could have. So there's a lot of different ways for it to go. Cool. Uh, you can be showing it off at a con and demoing it and a publisher happens to walk by and see it. It's not unheard of. That happened with Spirit Island. Uh, yeah, I was running demos and playtests in the Unpub area at Origins. Christopher Bedell of Greater Than Games like wandered through the Unpub area and happened to see it, was curious, talked to me about it, and that's what began the conversation. Like that wasn't the end pitch. They didn't sign it then or anything. You know, I worked on it for another year and then went back to Origins, right. you know, to pitch it to both Greater Than Games and other places. But that was how I made contact with them and knew huh. that they were interested. How like, finalized was that version of the con? Like oh, how no, close it was? That was 2012. I'd done a lot of work on it because that was before I had kids. So that was the early fast iteration days that those first four or five months from February or March of 2012 through Origins and a touch after, I got a lot of work done on Spirit Island because like I had momentum, I had focus, I had very positive feedback. So I was doing a lot, changing a lot and the game was huge. So I just needed to mm. get all kinds of stuff done. When did it all start? Just like putting things together for Spirit Island. There was an early on stage. You know, there's some TV shows which don't really hit their legs until the second season. So like, yeah, there, there was uh, a Parks and Rec. <laughs> There was a first season of Spirit Island design, which was the initial idea and messing around with it, getting some stuff done, but then ultimately both feeling like, okay, this is a 
huge project and the next step involves an immense amount of thematic and effect brainstorming. Like, is it worth that much upfront investment of work? And there's a couple of mechanical areas that I'm not sure on and would like to sleep on. So I kind of shelved it for a year or two. I don't remember exactly how long. Like it could have been three months and it could have been three years. I really have no recollection. And then around January of 2012 was what I'll call sort of the first pass where I was like, okay, yeah, let's do this. And started brainstorming, talked about it with Ted Bessemas, who, for those who are not familiar, was sort of my touchstone. He's a friend, another game developer, uh, lead developer on Spirit Island. He did do immense amounts of playtesting and sort of help with uh, balance tuning and all kinds of other crafting. But in those early days, something he helped with immensely was enthusiasm. And Uh because I always say, like, when you look at advice for new game designers, there's always, always like, you know, make sure to listen to people who will criticize your game because you need Mm. good criticism to advance. Something that sometimes fail to mention is, and make sure to listen to people who love your game because you need motivation. And without motivation, you won't advance. You need those two things. And so in those early days, Ted thought it was a great idea because, I mean, I knew this and it's one of the reasons I sort of like got enthusiastic about it at him. Ted really likes games where you have lots of toys to play with, like lots of different special effects and powers and uniqueness and all that stuff. And I'm like, this game will be right up Ted's alley. And so I talked to him about it. And he's like, yeah, this sounds great. You should like totally work on this. I'd be really curious to see like where this goes. And with that, like, okay, there's at least one person who's curious to see where this goes. So I, you know, brainstormed, came up with a whole lot of stuff, took it to a convention called Intercon, LARP convention, but there's a little bit of side order of board games, which gets played in the con suite. Brought it there and got some play tests in. And by the end of that convention, I knew that I had something because okay. even though it was ridiculously rough and painful. I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen what it used to be. <laughs> uh, I still have some pieces from those stuffed it away in a box somewhere. But Was Shadow stronger in that version? Or? Shadows didn't exist in that version. Not only did Shadows not exist, individual spirits did not exist. What? This was before, like, I simulated individual spirits by grabbing a few minor powers from the minor power deck and handing them and saying, this is your unique starting position. Hmm. Oh, so yeah. it was like just a deck builder, kind of. Uh, yes, or... to some extent. It was, okay. like, it was really early, and most of the core concepts were there, but it was very, very different. And even so, by the end of the con, there were people who had played it, people coming into me saying, my friend told me I had to come play this, who I didn't That's know. That's cool. Coming, wow. wanting to try it, to sit That's down. Cool. Like, yeah, so like that was sign number one, and sign number two was then people would say, I want to playtest this, and they'd go through the effort of like print and playing a copy, which was a beast. You like 36 who, trees worth of paper. That you gotta, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and then people who played with them would email me and say like, I want to play test too. Can I go through all the work? Like if you bought the components for a print and play copy, you'd be paying like 30 or $40 for all the like wooden and plastic and other right. bits. Sure. So yeah. like it was expensive in time and money. The fact that people were willing to go through right. that level of bother to test and play the game in its rough state. It wasn't necessarily indicative of market breadth. Like this will sell well to many people, but it was indicative from the very early days of the people who really love this game will love it a lot. And honestly, that's more important. Like as long as you have your Mm -hmm. thousand, two thousand, three thousand people to justify a print run, if you can get those number of people who dearly love a game, then like it's better to have a game which 20% of people love and the remaining 80% hate with a fiery passion (laughs) than it is having a game which every person in the world goes, "Eh, it's okay. (laughs) Was it being cooperative always an area of focus? Was it ever competitive or is 
led to something you really wanted to hammer home? The fundamental conceit was always cooperative because one of the drives behind it was at the time, most cooperative games were just lighter weight than I tended to prefer. And okay. oftentimes they were both lighter weight and of the type of co-op, which sort of divides a constant amount of problem among however many players you have. So if you play with five players, you only have a little piece of the problem and there's downtime with other players' turns. And it's not that the mechanisms were fundamentally unsatisfying. The puzzles those games presented were interesting, but mm -hmm. the experience of playing with them was one which I didn't like as much because of just that structure to them. So I wanted something which was more complex where everybody could be thinking at once. And so it was a co-op from the day one. So there were these two guys I met at BGGCon around then who whenever we played a game together were always rivals. Like they would always mess with each mm. other. They were friends mm. and they're always getting each other's way and like talking smack with each other. Well, so, what are friends for? I mean, come on. Yeah, I know, like, exactly. <laughs> so I did keep in the back of my head in the very early days, like, okay, maybe fire spirits and water spirits, you know, like, or like a spirit of the grasslands and a spirit of the wildfire. Maybe they really hate each other. Maybe there's some sort of, maybe not competitive mode, but like, you know, getting in each other's face mode or like you have rival spirits. So like you're playing co-op, but you personally have a sub goal of like coming out on top of your rival spirit. That didn't really come through. It ended up being more fun as just co-op, but it is what is responsible for the, the damage scales all being the same, like damage to the land, damage to invaders, damage to Han. Those are all on the same order of magnitude. And back in the early days, presence also soaked damage. And it also was on the same scale. And oh. so all those things had a similar damage scaling yeah. because in those early days, in the back of my head was, well, maybe these are going to get used in some sort of, not full PvP, but like player contention with player, you know, sort mm -hmm. of jockeying level PvP. So it informed the design, but it didn't come through in any big sort of way. I tried to have one game where we like tallied fear and it went terribly. Like who quote unquote earned the most fear? Yep. It got so competitive and people were just like, no, I defended here. So that Dahan fear is for me. And it was just like kind of changed the game completely. Yeah. Yeah. The closest I've ever come to that is having vague notions about tracking which board fear gets done on and having the fear card effects apply to that board to give fear sort of a spatiality to it. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of fiddly. So the experiments never really went anywhere. Managed to get a little bit of like where fear is done is relevant through Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares, you know, defend here power, as well as the shadows aspect, which you know, messes around with that kind of thing. Oh, I love foreboding. Yeah. Speaking of spirits, because you said initially people were just like drawing a hand of cards. Like when did yeah. specialized spirits begin? Or like what made you come up with that idea? That was always intended. I just didn't want to start oh. with it. It's like limit the variables you're dealing with. Oh, okay. I wanted to get the core of the game. Things I knew that I wanted, but didn't have have yet were like unique spirits. The notion of elements and innate powers was in my head from the beginning. Sorry, not the very, very beginning, but well before those early tests where I didn't have them. And mm. I knew I wanted them, but I also knew like these are going to be complicating and confounding factors. Just like if you teach the game to a new player and you throw in the events, the events subvert how the normal explore, build, ravage process works. And it makes yeah. it hard for newer players to internalize that orderly progression. Similarly, on a design level, I can see those faces you're making. Ryan. <laughs> I'm just going to say events. nothing. I'll let you guys have this all yourself. Events should have been in the base game, then you wouldn't know any different, Ryan. <laughs> But similarly, like when you're doing a design, if you have so many different points of variability and you're looking to make things which are both more and less fundamental, then nailing down the fundamental stuff, not permanently, like, you know, they're nails, you can pull them out and move things and renail it if you need to. But getting some level of stability lets you examine one or two or three variables at a time instead of 20. So mm -hmm. I was like, no adversaries, no elements or innate powers, no even like special per spirit variability stuff, whole lot of, you know, things which were intended to be 
be variable and special and unique and cool were pushed off to like, okay, let's get the basic system working first. What parts of the game took the longest to design or construct? Was it like the spirits, the adversaries, like you mentioned, or? So if you're talking about developing content, like, okay, I want to make a new spirit or adversary or aspect or event card, then adversaries and spirits tend to be the things that take the longest. Adversaries, because they're layered, if you change the level one of an adversary, then it affects everything up above it. And spirits, because they're just the most detailed and complicated game item, they're the most complex internal system thing, which exists as sort of an atomic unit. In terms of developing the rules of the game, the structure as opposed to the mm. content, that I don't really know how to answer. Like take invader cards. The core concept of invader cards, which specify a terrain and progress through a series of actions, doing them on subsequent turns, that was nailed down incredibly early. That was nailed down during the first season testing before I even got into it as a big project. It was one of the things where you'd be go, oh yeah, this is really neat. Like I want to run with this. But that core concept never changed. But then details of what was on the invader cards has changed. Like first it was just the terrains. Then it was the terrains and activation symbols for beasts and curses. Ooh. After that, it was activation symbols for curses and events were on the invader cards. Then those got peeled off to a separate deck because the correlation between event and terrain was too much. So they just stayed that way for a long time. And then escalation symbols got added. And then somewhere in there, I was like playing around with, okay, invaders will still explore, build, ravage as their progression over different turns. But on a specific turn, should they ravage first or should they explore first or should they build first? Like, mm. where did you do that? And fairly late also, there was for a long, long time, the additional stage two card was not coastal lands. It was repeat previous terrain. And so that got changed, not super late in the game, but maybe sometime around the same time as the escalation symbols or a touch later. So how long did the invader cards take? I don't know how to answer that. Like the core concept was very short, but they were being changed over the course of years, right. sporadically throughout that entire time. And like all the systems of the game were like that. I can say, okay, like this part more settled down towards the later bits or, oh, fear wasn't even there early on at all. But outside of those specific things, like it's everything got worked on all the time. To really give you an idea of it, what I need to do is make a giant Excel sheet or one of those <laughs> cross charts where I say, okay, here's the system of the game across the top. And then down the side are like dates of iterations I have. And then I could fill in individual cells like major revisions or moderate revisions and give you some picture of where the game stood at various points in time. We'll have the link in our description below. Oh God, no, no, no. <laughs> Get working on that now, Eric. You promised. You mentioned like fear wasn't even there. Like, What changed most during the development of the game? Like did something just like, whoa, we can't even do that or it's completely different from the start? Fear wasn't there. There are multiple systems which got dropped. The Reckoning got dropped. Do you even know what the Reckoning is? No. I know the second Reckoning. Uh, yes, there's lore Reckoning, but there was a concept in game called the Reckoning, which was you've gotten through the Invader deck. Like, okay, do you win or do you lose? And during initial times, they're like, well, okay, you might be doing well, you might be doing poorly. Okay, so there were these kind of Reckoning cards at the end, which threw challenges at you, which you then needed to cope with. Like, okay, all right, all right, this Reckoning card is ravaging all lands with cities. And this next Reckoning card is do this other terrible thing. Ooh, you know, you know, that'd be tough. Basically threw a bunch of really hard challenges at you. The problem was that it was additional rules overhead, additional components. It didn't work like any other system in the game. And it turned out that like a 12 turn game is really both satisfying and a long enough game to begin with. Like you don't need to stick extra stuff on the end there. If you run through the invader deck, you lose. We tried it and it's like, actually that works a lot better. 
Mm. Other systems which fell by the wayside. Oh, uh, fear cards. Well, there was no fear to begin with, so there probably weren't fear cards, right? There weren't fear cards, but for a while, fear cards had alternate victory conditions in them. Um, This was a precursor to fear dictating the terror level, which dictated victory. Early on, it was like, oh, okay, so maybe the invaders are particularly creeped out by disease. Okay, so this fear card turns up, and if you can add some number of disease to the board, then you win. Turns out that's just super swingy and not actually something you can plan for. So it got dropped. Mm-hmm. But like that was the thing which got tinkered around with for huh. you know a long time. Other major change. There were. I'm sure there's a lot. There were so many changes. Like one time I was in an interview and somebody was like, "Oh, can you like list the major things?" I'm like, "No." <laughs> you know. Next like, question. I got off the interview and I realized, oh, I totally forgot about these three systems. Oh well, okay. You know, I've already I'm, forgotten I'm, like my most important questions. You're fine. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, there was Dahan Morale. So in the early days, I mentioned that like damage worked differently. Like I mentioned, like presence took damage. There was also this notion of damage happened in different orders to different things. Like first you damage the land and then Dahan or the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so the problem was that either way it worked out kind of badly. Like if Dahan took damage before the land, then on sort of thematic level, you ended up just constantly using the Dahan as meat shields, which was terrible. It was atrocious. And also it was deceptive in that you'd be like, oh, okay, the invaders don't have that much off. We don't need to worry about it that much, but then like all the Dahan would be dead, and suddenly they're just like <sighs> steamroll. Oh, yeah. So even if you were just like sort of this sadistic, ah, we will cause pain to all the humans, on sort of a design expectation level, it was very deceptive. The other way around, doing damage to the land and then Dahan made Dahan counterattacks way too easy to set up. Like the invaders just never had any sort of chance. So there were a variety of ways I tried to work around this. One of those was the Dahan would start off the game bold, where they would take damage first. But once they took casualties and realized, oh God, like this is a problem, then they would flip over to being cautious. Then the land would get blighted first. As it turned out, there's the device often given in game design of don't be afraid to kill your darlings, give up on ideas which you really like. That was an idea I thought was really neat, but you know, Christopher from Great in the Games was like, you really think? I'm like, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's the step to when you're explaining the game you're like and this card does no no and it turns out it's a better game without it so Mm. there were a lot of those a lot of oh i like this i like this no it's a better game without it like sacred sites is a separate piece Mm. no better game without it is there anything that you wish would have ended up on the cutting room floor anything that you were like ah, i wish we would have made this in the game in hindsight i don't think so at the time i really wanted there were two spirits which didn't make it into branch and claw we didn't hit the stretch goals for them and i was super happy because sharp fangs and, and keeper of the forbidden wilds both made it in. but i mm-hmm. was sad that the other two didn't but in hindsight i'm pretty glad they were the shakiest of all of the spirits on sort of a variety of levels and that gave me the chance to rework them instead and we ended up with Shroud of Silent Mist and Vengeance is a Burning Plague and Grinning Lobby Shroud Mist is my spirit animal. Yeah, so <laughs> so it, like, it went to a great place. I'm happy about that. Similarly, like, okay, we're going to pull apart Branch and Claw from the core game and make those two separate things. That was something which was, again, one of those things which was like super painful, but once Greater Than Games brought it up, it's like, oh yeah, that's probably the right call, isn't it? It was hard to do, but yeah. there's times when there's like a feeling of sadness about something, but that doesn't mean it's the wrong call. So, and the further you get from it, the more you can look back at it with a slightly more detached perspective and be like, yes, I'm glad it worked out great as opposed to in the moment sadness. So, well, I like how Trickster ended up one of my favorite spirits. So, I oh, love yeah. I'm super happy with how Trickster ended up. Such a fun, random spirit and like oddly powerful sometimes, but not crazy overpowered. I don't know. It's just like a fun spirit. Trickster's variance is now much lower than it was in its original incarnation back during testing, sort of pre branching claw. 90% of playtesters were like, this 
this spirit is way underpowered. And I'm like, mm. really? And they're like me and Ted and one other person would sit down and play a game with Trickster and be doing the heavy lifting of like two full spirits. <laughs> and we're like, not overpowered. So it just had this like incredibly high skill cap. But because of that, newer players weren't finding it as fun. And like you say, like one of the things that it, it's right there on the tin is, hey, have some slightly whimsical random fun. And mm. that doesn't pair well with, by the way, there's a really high barrier to entry skill-wise. Like, you know. True. It's moderate complexity. You know, it's in an expansion. You can require some comfort and familiarity with the game, but you don't want to be like, you need master level play or the spirit will fail you. Like, that's not good. <laughs> I have to ask, could you ever like randomly pull a major with the innate instead of just minors or no? I thought the same yeah. question. I want, uh, I want to know. Go ahead and try it sometime. I think you'll find it's ridiculously overpowered, but you know. Okay. <laughs> Especially since there's a lot more majors which have as part of their gating or their balance restrictive targeting. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, you could have made like a serpent like super hard to obtain, I guess. Do you see how much space is on that? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot like, of words. Yeah, not as bad as Volcano. Volcano has more trouble that way. And mm. it is a testament to Ray is the one who did all the layout, I believe, for Spirit Island. I know she did the bulk of it. It's a testament to her layout that Volcano manages to look as non-Sardinish as it does. My playtest version of Volcano actually had the targeting box for its first innate was just a tiny little rectangle with the red bird icon, a tiny arrow at a zero, and an <laughs> any. Like, it was like... All mashed you know, up in one. It was about the size of a dime, except not as tall. <laughs> she somehow managed to make that work, for which I'm incredibly grateful. With the design of Spirit Island, were there any other games that kind of like influence you? You like, oh, I like that idea. I'm going to put that into this. The three big influences I can point at, two are direct and one is sort of more holistic. The two direct ones are Magic the Gathering, which was what I had always wanted traded cards to be growing up. Like, mm -hmm. hey, you can play a game with them rather than just being about a game. And they were also the rules morphing game, which I wanted something like Flux to be. They were this strategic choice driven, here is a tool, how are you going to use it in context and cleverly sort of game. So that has a heavy influence on the power card system. Okay. The other was Robo Rally because the initial concept was to avoid alpha gaming by using program action selection, which was also the derivation of the fast slow breakdown. Originally, like every turn had like nine steps. Every card was numbered one through nine and it happened during that step. But it turns out that was just terrible because it's <laughs> most of the time in a given step, nothing happened. Okay, anybody got any ones? No. Any twos? Nope. <laughs> no. Any threes? I got one. Okay, do this. Four of the invaders go. All right, fives? Go fish. Like, no. <laughs> it was just bad. By like, you know, the first con play test, I think I was down to three. And even then, like during the games, I was like, this, I know, it's going away. I know. I know. Yes. Yes, it's bad. Um, <laughs> I already know. I'm aware, I'm aware. Yeah. yeah, the fast slow split was interesting enough and fundamental enough that it stayed because it also was carrying thematic weight of like the spirits are slow. And functionally, like most spirits will have at least something to do in each phase with occasional exceptions. That's one of my favorite parts is the fast and the slow and then kind of like planning ahead either time. Like especially in the slow, you kind of get like, okay, before they build next turn, I can do this. That's my favorite part. One of them. So third one is chess. Not in any direct sense, but in that I did play a modest amount of chess as a kid, and then I got back into it in high school. I mean, play bridge on the way to math meets, on the way home from math meets, and when we were getting together to nominally practice for math meets. Probably some bridge got played around chess as well. So I played enough chess to have a certain amount of my brain which does the look-ahead thing, where you spatially visualize, oh, here's the board position now, but if I do this, if I move this pawn, then my opponent might make any of these three plausible counter moves. Okay, 
if they do that, what am I doing? If they do this, what am I doing? If they're with mm-hmm. a bishop, what am I doing? Given that game state, what does it do from here? And, you know, how deep the chains go. Like once you hit a point where it's like, and here I obviously have advantage, you can sort of mentally prune and stop looking there. But the more competitive you get at chess, the deeper and more sophisticated look ahead you're doing. And I played enough chess to have that as just a thing I not only do, but enjoy. Like I find it intrinsically pleasurable to kind of puzzle things out in that fashion. And that kind of spatial anticipation is something which exists in Fealty, my first published game. It exists in Spirit Island in the form of what the invaders are doing over subsequent turns, and it exists in For Science. It's not going to be in every game I make. I've had prototypes which it doesn't feature in, but it's probably in like a good 80% plus of my prototypes. Is some measure of spatial look ahead or anticipation in that regard. When John was talking about speeds, that kind of made me think, was it always fast, slow? Were there multiple speeds ever? Like a speed one, speed two, speed three card that came in at a different time? Because fast and so that's just two speeds and it's deep enough to have layered gameplay where like just as john was saying which is also one of my favorite things about the game is that layered timing like okay so i'm gonna play this card but as i predict what i want to do i have to factor in what the bad guys are gonna do when this goes off and i think i remember hearing that there wasn't always just two speeds and i was curious how many speeds there were i remember that there were nine numbers but the invaders used some of them So, like, number one was used for, like, start of turn effects. It wasn't something which you'd play a card with a one on it. Mm. Either, like, four and seven or three, six, nine, I think, were invaders, Mm. or they could act then. And there was a division in the fast stuff. I think two was all spirit-to-spirit buffs with the idea that you should resolve all of those first. And then, Mm. so, like, two was that. Or maybe that was one, and then two was things like defend and other stuff, which, you know, sort of had to be fast. Then there was an early invader actions. And then there was, you know, sort of, okay, this is kind of fast. It was a one through nine system. It had gotten trimmed down to only use five of those, three for the spirits, two for the invaders. By the time I actually showed the prototype to anybody else, then it pretty much became, okay, fast spirit invaders, slow spirit. And then for a while, the early invader deck didn't have stage one, two, three cards. It just had two of every terrain shuffled together. And when you finished the deck, you then reshuffled and started drawing two cards per turn instead of one, but you wouldn't draw them at the same time. You'd do one at the normal time and then one at end of turn. So you had effectively invader phases coming twice as often. Wow. But that turned out to be more effective to do just be a stage invader deck. It's slightly more setup, but it does a lot of good things for the game. Mm. Just in talking about the things that I absolutely love what you've achieved with this game, there's, I feel as if I could cherry pick from a bucket of like 50 things. But honestly, one of my biggest, most favorite things is when you have a bunch of variety, in general, a bunch of variety, because that aids to more replayability. And for me, one of my favorite things that a game has, if they do this, is having a board that's not the same. I love a modular board. And no surprise, my favorite game of all time has a modular board. And so I was very curious because... Because I remember when I first started playing the game, I remember I was fascinated by the boards because like, this is such a weird shape. Like it has like this weird- It is a weird shape. Like Mm -hmm. this weird, I don't know, like jigsaw-esque kind Mm -hmm. of appearance. And yet it somehow works no matter what way I use. Like if I can put it on top here, but I can put it there and it works. And who came up with this design? How did this work? Obviously the part where the ocean is doesn't work, but you know, it's fine. Mm -hmm. But like, oh my word, this is so cool. So I was curious, like how long did that take to get from like prototype version to that because I'm sure it probably wasn't like that from the get-go. 
very first board was a single monolithic board. That was during the sort of season one exploration, because that was during the like, what is this game anyway? That was while I was developing mm. how the invader cards worked. The original plan was to have a sort of a canonical map and then like little arrows, which indicate the direction which invaders spread. So you could have like choke point lands that give some sort of terrain positional variance to it to create an interesting sense of spatiality. That didn't survive for a variety of reasons. One was that it looked really busy, although there have been games like Legends of Andor manages to do that in a way which graphically mm. sort of looks pretty Good. But it also didn't survive because the scaling was really rough. I was trying to scale spirit power level up and down to handle a constant amount of invader threat, which both didn't sit well with me because it's like, oh, this is a little bit too much like dividing a constant amount of game among different numbers of players. And just because it was difficult because it meant that the ramp, the way the ramping had to work needed to be very precise for the spirit. So instead I'm like, okay, well, let's go for modular boards instead. And then there's like a nice variety in gameplay. My initial modular boards were just weird, a of hexes because I'm like oh that way you can like put them together any which way you can make all sorts of islands which would be great <laughs> the lands inside of them were not necessarily strictly hex based but the borders between pieces were hmm. and you could stick them together every which way but you always had these like awkward pieces where they weren't connected it just didn't feel right it didn't feel good yeah. and the juxtaposition of the very straight board edges and the fluid interior land boundaries was terrible mm. aesthetically speaking so like okay well let's just just go for a straight up tessellation, you know, something which is just going to fit. I knew about tessellations because I had this awesome math book growing up with just all about math, which isn't the standard stuff you get in school. I was talking about like, you know, combinatorics and probability and, mm -hmm. you know, graph theory and tessellations was one of the other ones. And I really enjoyed it. So I had some concept of how to make a tessellation, but there's also tessellation builders online. You can go like just, you know, Google one, look it up and play around with it. So I thought, okay, rhombus is a nice thing. The big question was, do I want the boards to flip over and still mesh up with each other if flipped over? I could have done that. It would have required the little bulges being a lot more symmetric. Ultimately, I decided I wanted them to look more organic, less regular. So I made it so you can't just flip them over and put them together. But by that point, I had the idea in the back of my head of making the flip side be an entirely different sort of board. So, you know, that works out anyway. It means you can't accidentally mix and match the two. It's clear, like, no, you know, this goes with this, this goes with that. We'll get onto this a little bit later, but I'm actually really glad that there is a thematic side. Some players are like, eh. Like they can take it or leave it, but I'm just from one it's person swingy. to another. I think it's, it's dope. <laughs> oh, it's totally swingy. I'm incredibly happy it's there. It's not my usual yes. to play on. I definitely mm. don't do my playtesting on it because it's so swingy. Mm. Again, it's that sense of place, that sense of distinctiveness and of having like, you know, there's some lands which are just their spatial positioning makes them more interesting or more choke pointy or more strategically yeah. relevant than others. And that's something which you kind of have to actively steer away from on the balance mm -hmm. boards. Like there's places where I didn't, that giant long wetland on board D. Board D. Which is sort of, which is sort of like the Like, <laughs> it turns out that's a small difference. The bigger difference is that there's two coastal wetlands, especially against Scotland. Yeah. Strong yeah. inland thing. There is still a range three from the ocean land. It's the, right. the lower right jungle or whatever it is. But that one thing, like, it really changes up how things play in a way which is simultaneously interesting and unbalancing. Is that hard to make up a board and you have to think about ratios and balancing? Because you also have that numeric system one through eight which by the way I think is actually really cool and it helped me when I first started to realize that lands one through three are your coast and seven and eight are always your innermost lands and then four through six are going to be any combination of generally the middle I thought yeah. that was a really cool idea I thought that was executed pretty well but I'm curious because obviously you don't want to have any boards that are too similar to another board you don't want to have 
one that has two mountains up north. And then here's another board that has two mountains up north. So you want to make sure it's different. You want to have variety, but both for aesthetics and for the purposes of game balance and whatnot, it'd probably be wise to look at ratios here. This one is like this. This one's like that. And I'm curious, like the thought processes that go behind designing a board and which factor is the most important or which one comes first and which one is like, eh, does the blight go in four or five? Eh, is that later? Is that kind of, you know, maybe early? Like these boards, I'm wondering at what point certain ideas of importance get implemented. Hmm. So I learned from my mistakes in the core game. There's things which I learned while developing the core game and there's things I learned afterwards. Mm -hmm. So while developing the core game, I learned like, oh, each board needs to have three coastal lands. Going to two or going to four is just too swingy. And that was even before the coastal lands card got added, just in terms of powers which key off of land, like playing on a two coastal land board and you get tsunami. It's like, eh? And mm -hmm. if you're playing on a two coastal land board and you're playing ocean, ugh. Uh, so, and the reverse for a four coastal land board. So sure, right. like that's one constraint I knew was necessary. I pretty quickly figured out there was one board during core game testing, which had this like sort of nice snaky river going through the middle. And it was adjacent to all seven other lands on the board and one of the lands off the board. That's too many. That is too many adjacencies because optimal move, any game, any situation was for any spirit to set up a sacred site in that land because it gives you range one mm -hmm. from sacred site to like eight lands and to every single coastal land and every other land on the board. Right. Finders so, sitting there with their isolates like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Finder would love it. <laughs> and there's some others like that, like, you know, every board in the core game onwards has exactly six to Han, split up yeah. into groups two, two, one, one. You get all four terrains mm -hmm. represented. You have three on the coast, three inland. So those are a bunch of the things which I sort of knew. Also that the threats, like the city, the starting blight, and the starting town should all be on different terrains to help even out the effects of the invader deck. And then there's the sort of system-wide constraints of furthermore on boards A, B, C, D, the, the unthreatened terrain is different on each of those four boards. And I try and switched up to like which types of terrain there's two to Han in on each of the four boards and so forth and so on. Those are all things I realized. Then there's other things I didn't realize, like don't have two lands of the same terrain type. Being adjacent to all other lands is bad. It turns out being adjacent to even six other lands on a given board is also eh, doable, but not super great. Five is really, practically speaking, the kind of cap which I shoot for these days and shot for with Jagged Earth. Mm. Having a land which is adjacent to exactly one other land is really dicey. Some of the Jagged Earth candidate boards had a land three which was completely enclosed by land two which is really interesting yeah uh, wow. but it's also incredibly painful if that area of the board starts blighting off soon Mm. There's all kinds of boards which are more interesting, but just inherently more swingy, which are sort of like halfway between the balanced boards and the thematic boards, mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, this is really cool to play on, but it's just sometimes it just kind of shoots you in the foot randomly. Yeah. My favorite boards so, are the one where there's an inland land that touches all three coastal lands. Yes. <laughs> Those yeah, are my favorite boards. If I ever get to do a second edition, I'll probably bias against no. what there is in terms of. <laughs> but River uh, like, loves it. It <laughs> might be required. A. Yeah, there's two of them. I can't remember which two. One from Jagged Earth, one from. Mm -hmm. I think it's board a for base for base it's the one which has the blight in the jungle in land four i can't remember which what letter it is though either b or c actually a also does it with the blight in the sands doesn't it yeah yeah i think yeah, a touches all lines. of them yeah so it's three Ugh. Oh, well. How dare you question John, Eric? Don't you know that he plays this game a lot? <laughs> no, hang on. I just play River a lot. And River loves board A because that blighted sands touches all the coasts. Yeah. And because uh, land number five wetlands has so many adjacencies where it's like, woo -hoo -hoo. Yeah. It's yeah. the best board for River. Yeah, it's fantastic. Do um, you ever pick spirits based on the board you're on or pick a board for the spirit you're playing or you want to play? Every now and then, like, we'll usually figure the board setup as mm. we figure spirits and then we'll figure out who's going to be on which board, which 
mostly yeah. like during the pandemic, we mostly do just by seating position mm -hmm. on, you know, on TTS or whatnot. But every now and then it'll be like, oh, starting in this board with this spirit and this board layout, it's like I'm totally wedged in a corner and we're already kind of stretching on the adversary. Why don't we swap these two boards so that I'm not like wedged in a corner? It won't be like, oh, I'm playing lure. Let me hunt down a board which has favorable inland yeah. adjacencies. Mm -hmm. I kind of regard that as part of the randomization setup challenge of the game. Mm. Uh, or if I do do that, I'll do it because we're stretching and I know it's already going to be a really tough game. And it, like, if I push it too much further, we're just going to like fail immediately. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a bunch of board constraints and I'm still learning new ones all the time. With the Jagged Earth boards, there was also constraints like I don't want land number three to be jungles on too many boards so that if you're playing against Brandenburg, Prussia, you don't add a town to too many boards and end up with swinginess in terms of does jungle come up on turn one or two. Mm. So. Um, Were there always four lands in the designing process when it was going through the whole advancement? Oh, four terrain types? Yeah, terrain types. Yeah, no, early days there were five. Not only were there five, but there were two different types of rainforest because there's actually multiple different types of rainforest in real life. Oh, yeah. But it turns out that even if you call one of them like jungle and one forest or rainforest, that like most players in the US, those are the same things semantically. And so yeah. they get them confused constantly, which is why the terrains are sort of as diverse as they are. Are because it's a better memory yeah. peg. They are all plausible tropical terrains. They don't all necessarily happen on the same island. There's a lot of cues in the power cards. Like there's a number of power cards where it's like this works in jungle or mountains, which is a cue to the fact that the mountains also have a lot of jungle on them. They're just the very rugged, mm -hmm. steep jungle as mm -hmm. opposed to right. the other things. And the mountains also being mountains, they have very swift waterways. So, you know, you get sure. some of the, the waterway type powers will do either wetlands or mountains. So they're not as sort of single note as the graphics appear. The graphics are that way because otherwise it would be incredibly unclear and hard to play. Right. You know, on the Facebook Spirit Island group, I constantly see contention between the various amounts of design choice versus flaw on the thematic side. How quick it is from a player standpoint to correctly identify what a land is. Now, speaking for me personally, I'm a very observant person. And as a painter of multiple years, it is very easy for me to differentiate between one color versus another. For me, I have no problem quickly identifying, oh yeah, that's a jungle. Oh yeah, that's a wetland, just fine. But a lot of people look at the thematic side and they're kind of turned off by it. They like the idea of it, but they don't really ever use it because they just have such a hard time identifying what exactly am I looking at? I think that's a sand but there's like some greens in the corners and kind of weird for me like i said for me i'm fine i noticed that in the neoprene playmat that came when jagged earth came out the borders are clearly colored to assist this i'm sure this had to be brought up to someone in the big wig conference room like hey this is a consideration some people call it a mistake some people call it a different choice i don't think it's a mistake i just think it's different i think it's dope personally but i know i'm in the minority here i like the visual appearance i love it having aids to identifying is good. The colored lines in the redo on the neoprimat are great. I also had brought up the possibility of like just an icon around the land number or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the neoprene playmat instead now has like a little one letter thing, which does that. I had brought that up, but it didn't end up making its way into the first printing or the core game rather for the initial Kickstarter. I don't know the details of why it may have just been a time thing. Eric, I have a question about the low complexity spirits. I just want to know if they were difficult to design, easy enough for beginners to play, but also viable for veterans or against more difficult adversaries. Like, was that a fine line hard to meet? So designing a low complexity spirit is an incredible pain in the butt. But <laughs> like, it's not a matter of power level. That's really easy. Like designing a low complexity spirit is easy. Designing a low complexity thematic and fun spirit is harder. 
Okay. Uh, and designing one which is the appropriate power level? Eh, like, it's easy enough to grab a spirit panel and just scribble, like, here's an energy track. Four, seven, ten, fifty. Wow. <laughs> there we go. Oh, that's another thing which changed, by the way. Energy used to be bigger by about a factor of three. The thing about low complexity spirits, which is tricky, is that when I'm designing a spirit, I have an idea in mind, a thematic idea, often an idea of either a personality or an affect or a thing of nature, of a dynamic, of maybe a mechanical thing which the spirit can do, or a moment in play, an emotion which can be felt. There's a lot of different inspirations for spirits. Mm -hmm. And then in order to make that, I have sort of two tools. I have the lore and play style panel, and I have the mechanics of the spirit. All the different mechanics I have, like from new rule systems to gains energy, you know, everything from the complex to the simple, they're like different paints. They're like different options for paint, either different colors of paint or different types of material, different types of paint. One type of thing is a base coat and then you use a different thing on top of it. And making a low complexity spirit is like limiting yourself drastically, both in what materials you use. You can't use complex new rule systems. You can't use any of the rules from branch and claw, any token types. And also in how many paint strokes you can put down. Maybe drawing is a better analogy there. I did a little bit of drawing in college. You can totally draw something in 15 seconds in five lines or fewer. And part of learning to draw well is learning to capture the dynamic essence of something and make a quick sketch like that, which carries that sort of sense of whatever the scene in front of you is. But if you have a vision in your head of, I really want to convey this, even if you get that first sketch spot on, at least for me, I go, awesome, that is a fantastic sketch, and now I really want to elaborate on it. Mm -hmm. I really want to use that as the basis for something which keeps that dynamism, keeps that core essence which I've gotten, and fleshes it out, gets more across to the viewer. There is a certain elegance in the simplicity, but I love making those elaborations. I feel like I'm telling a little more of a spirit's story. I feel like I'm creating a little bit more for players to engage with. And that makes it really hard to just stop at low complexity when I have the- Hence the aspects, right? The yeah, yeah, totally. spirit aspects. Yeah, I still love the low complexity spirits. I play them as often as any others, a little more because I play with new players and I often will grab one of them just so that they can see what I'm doing and like, you know, go, oh, okay. You know, you played lightning last game. I kind of saw what you were doing that game. So now when I play lightning, I know, oh yeah, lightning is fast stuff. I'll still find new strats. Like taking Gift of Power as a first lightning pick was something that I hadn't done until after the game came out, but I did it and was delighted by it. It's like, oh yeah, actually this is way more effective than you might think, despite it being complete off element. You know, that's fantastic. So, Zero energy gaining cards. Nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, you're not hitting your name quite as often the first couple of turns, but it sets you up for a phenomenal late game. Is lightning good for new players? Oh, you <laughs> shut up. John thinks a certain very specific <laughs> way about Rivers it. the best for new players. <laughs> I think it depends on what you're trying to do with the new players. Oh. If there's a new player who you know is going to just want to like, you know, I want to blow some stuff up and is going to be spending most of their mental energies just engaging with the systems of the game and like, I have this power card and I have this other power card and they have these elements like where you know that learning the push game is going to be something that they're not really ready for until late game, then lightning is fantastic. If you're playing a big game, and you want to have like, okay, yeah, like making things fast is really good, but it can't happen all the time, then lightning can be fantastic. I see the opinions online, like lightning teaches you bad habits. That is totally a danger. But the way I usually personally do it, like if it's a friend I'm introducing to the game, what I'll just do is like, okay, some, one of them is playing lightning first. Just say, don't play lightning the second time. Like play lightning first, play somebody else the second time. You don't get used to that groove of like, oh yeah, I can always do this. Make sure not to have that be your assumed, oh no, 
I can't really <laughs> fast anymore, but I always do. But there's other players, players who really get a real gratification out of finesse for them, totally get the river right off, you know, because they'll totally be all over that. So I'd say that like what you think the person will enjoy mm -hmm. is probably a little more important because lightning can still teach players to interrupt the ravage build cycle just a little more subtly. And with river, you still learn to use fast powers with flash floods. So mm -hmm. like either one can still manage it. Will we ever see a new low complexity spirit in the future or upcoming expansions? It seems dubious. Maybe if there's a second edition someday, then I might do a different set of four or include some but not others. But that's all utter speculation and it's contingent on there being a second edition as well. If there's a second edition, you'll definitely see new dynamics to the low complexity spirits because like I have edits in my head to make to all of them. Shadow's oh, getting more energy to better start. Area. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Please, uh, if uh, it's also plausible if I ever do an apocrypha spirit and everybody who's there is like, hey, we want you to do a low complexity spirit. They're like, I'll run with that. But in terms of expansions, partly it's the, like the creation thing I mentioned. But for Jagged Earth, we did have a few low complexity candidates, but none of them worked out well. And the ones which did then said, you know, kind of raised their hand and said, hey, I really want to be medium complexity. Like I work as I am, but there's this thing I can do. Like shifting memory of ages, that thing was the element mark which is really like oh yeah like were there always full... eight elements Ooh, no there were originally six sun and moon were absent oh you know i was yeah. about to guess i was like if there were two my guess would be sun and moon yeah it was sun and moon and i kept running into powers which wanted to do things with light and darkness and i was kind of using a fire airs proxy for light and mm -hmm. earth waters proxy for darkness but it never really resonated thematically i'm like oh, i don't think this is quite working so i went to additional and i am so glad i did because it works out so much better both on a thematic level the easiest illustration is in the old system river and ocean would have had the same elements and huh. as it is some of their personality difference comes through in their elemental difference now there are spirits which can have the exact same element portfolio and just vary in which ones they wait and that's totally a legit way and their personality differences will come through in both their mechanical gameplay and their lore and their art and whatnot that's totally legit but there would have been no elemental distinction between the two they would have tended to want the same power cards and they should want some the water ones but then there's mm -hmm. others which they should want differently mm -hmm. the other half is that when there were only six elements there tended to be two elements per minor power which meant that if you took a minor power which was perfect for you it tended to have two elements you wanted so if you were ocean you'd grab your okay i want this water and earth card and it usually wouldn't have a third element now that there's three elements most of the time that you find a card which has two elements you want the third element is something else just kind of whatever and that creates much more interesting gameplay because it means you then later draw into a major then and you don't get any majors which are like spot on perfect for you but you draw something which has that element which you happen to pick up on a previous card you have the choice you have the interesting strategic choice of pivoting and going oh well i wasn't planning on playing wildfire as a water splash spirit but i guess i can go with fire and flood sure let's run with this <laughs> You know, because I happened to take that minor power earlier, which had water for no good reason other than the fact that it did. It also feeds well into choice events where like, oh, yeah, I happen to have this power.
power, which has plant, and I'm not a plant spirit, but we have this plant event. Is it worth losing this card mm-hmm. to gain a benefit from the choice event, as opposed to, eh, I can only burn energy for it. So it does good things for the game. Again, I think of this in terms of an artist's palette. Like prior to Sun and Moon, you had all the colors of the rainbow. Adding Sun and Moon added black and white. And okay. without that, you could use any color you wanted, but you weren't choosing your saturation. So. <laughs> All right, I want to bring up Blight, because it seems like it's changed throughout each expansion. Because with the face, there was just those two cards for the Blight cards, and they were both bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're the wonderful, cheerful ones that everyone likes. (laughs) But then with Branjaclaw and then Jagged Earth, we started getting better ones, and then we get the Blight Errata change, and then, like, Blight seems to become more of an acceptable resource. I just wonder why that is what made you change from each expansion. So Blight has always been an acceptable resource, sort of from a design standpoint. The two Blight cards in the core game were that way because Branch and Claw was separated out from the core game super late. And those were the two Blight cards which I had, which worked without the event deck. From a game dynamic standpoint, like Blight is a resource. And if you can exchange that resource in an uncontrolled fashion for board position, it makes your early game way, way easier. So if you have no event deck and all of your Blight cards are stuff like a thing Mm -hmm. happens, but it's not that impactful, it's not that bad, then it's really good to just be like blight early game forget it like let the ravages through unless it's a terrible bad cascade we're going to destroy one of us just like trade blight for development hand over fist well i suppose if you're a spirit like you know paul over pseudopod or whatever so you need something to make early blight bad both on sort of a raw mechanical level also experientially like it feels really weird to care about blight as a loss condition but literally not care about blight except for the last one placed in the game there were some times during design and development where there were multiple blight like there was a track where you had four pools of blight one after the other and as you emptied each one of them it's like okay you emptied the first one every spirit destroys one presence you empty the next every spirit destroys one presence when you emptied the last one you lost the blight card added some uncertainty because it turned out that losing some presence along the way actually not enough of a deterrent the certainty was what did it and so making it just uncertain not knowing that feeling of okay shaky ground it could be anything was what made the feel of blight in early game work out that being said in hindsight there was an experiential mistake not a mechanical one like balance wise downward spiral and memory fades to dust they might want one more blight per player each but that's not saying a lot because the incremental value of one more blight per player gets lower and lower the more you get of it because your board is just this pit and so like yeah. six blight per player from five and a four player game maybe that's one more ravage if that because you're going to get such terrible cascades i had a three player game with wildfire recently where we'd lost the game on a cascade which i think would have gone five lands it was pretty bad are they uh, not using the right to eight get yeah. more plants oh i was wildfire no it was all my come plan. on eric <laughs> oh trust me calcul- they have we enough took- plant elements <laughs> Plant. Took a calculated gamble, didn't pay off. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, so blight, but experientially, losing presence makes players who don't realize, oh, you can totally survive this. It makes them like, oh no, ah, I'm being killed. Yeah. Even though it doesn't actually make you any worse at what you do, it restricts your targeting somewhat. And so if they flip early, it's bad. Like, that's the point. You want to pull it off. But vital strength of the earth is putting down one a turn and starts with three. So, you know, shadows, you know, shadows is kind of like the worst case scenario for something like Downward Spiral, where you can't put one out of return because you need to reclaim sometimes. And you can only put out one. You can never put down two. But you start with three on the board. Like if you flip the Blight card on the second Ravage phase, which has a card, you should be 
up around five or maybe six presents, which is going to be a very, very constrained, painful game, but you're nowhere near out of the game. Unless you're playing at very high levels. Like if you're playing at very high levels, it can constrain your targeting enough. Just don't play shadows if you're playing high level. But no, actually that's why Reach does well. I didn't realize this dynamic, but I think it was was it G Pope who did like the huge number of games against Scotland and found like their win rate with Reach was so much higher than base. And it was all because avoid like if you had an early blight flip, you avoid the presence loss, which means that you don't lose targeting on your first innate and you can actually keep containment. So Reach fixes things. Yeah, Shadows with better. Aspects is like one of my favorite spirits now. Like Ryan loves Amorphous. I love foreboding. I feel bad to Shadows. Like, oh, I didn't do you justice. Like, you know, you should totally be awesome. I'm glad the Aspects are out there fixing things for people. But jumping back to Blight. So those Blight <laughs> cards may be mechanically balanced, but that doesn't mean that they feel good for a new player. And so that is the error in hindsight. I did try and come up with a couple others on short notice when I knew I needed to like pull apart the expansion for the base game. None of them really panned out well. Okay. But if there's a second edition someday, then it's not like, no, these are the correct ones for new players. Learn through pain. It's sort of like, no, no, not the best new player experience. And maybe they might want to be five and six instead of four and five. I'm not sure on that one. But yeah. So, oh yeah, the Blight is a resource. There's cards for Blight. Drought. Kill a bunch of stuff out of Blight. There you go. And I've had to balance for the fact that most players, especially newer players, tend to be much more emotionally aversive to Blight than is actually merited. So like adding Blight on a power card gives you a lot more boost on that power card than it will take to remove the Blight later, which makes some sense. You're kind of getting interest on a loan almost, so to speak, in terms of board position. It's like, well, if we never get to clean this up, it could make us lose. We're accepting some risk, so you get more out of it than comes into it. But in order to make newer players feel comfortable about, oh, Blight is going down, you need to make cards brokenly good. It tends to be something that more experienced players ease into, which makes sense because newer players don't have a sense of valuation or heuristics or like, how bad is adding this blight really? For newer player, it's like, I don't know, we might lose. For an experienced player, it's like, oh, that train's already come up in stage two. It's not going to be a problem again for like four turns. Don't worry about it. <laughs> We're fine. Yeah. Unless you're playing France and then the blight doesn't go back to the card. So that's fun. <laughs> We're doing our France game tonight, Eric, for our adversary series. So we're like yeah. knuckling up for that. <laughs> Wish us luck. What are you playing? Thanks and foreboding. Shadows of I'm doing foreboding. Oh, okay. All right. Yep. yep. Oh, we, we're going control and fear. Yep. Yeah. Thanks. That's a gutsy choice. Like, if thanks can keep ahead of the blight, then that's fantastic. And if they can't, oh, no. Oh, we'll be ready. Yeah. The good news is you're playing with Jagged Earth. There's some cards which can help you, which didn't exist before Jagged Earth. Like, yeah. I like the manipulation card. Entrap can, like, corruption. Yeah. yeah. Entrap the forces of corruption. I am so yeah. happy with how that one passed. Oh, I like the, yeah, being able to gather and push blight. That's been really cool. I love those cards. It's a design space I didn't use much early and kind of wanted to. And I also happened to need plant animal pairings in order to even out the elemental balance. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh. Okay, thematically speaking, many of the light moving manipulation cards won't plant animal anyway, mm. and it's kind of good for fangs. So, hey, synchronicity, this is awesome. Well, I'm going to try out for boating. We'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. They, they got crops wither. They can break down towns. Let's go. Yeah. Totally, totally. Except Explorer will turn into another town again. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, France is like Sweden in some ways, and like actually many of the accordion adversaries, to be honest, they're all very front-loaded because mm. yeah, France, it's low player overhead. That loss like, condition. Like put a piece of plastic on the board during setup. You don't need to think about it afterwards. Mm -hmm. uh, but I knew going into the core game that you couldn't do that too much. 
something I learned from the core game and tried to implement in Jagged Earth is that even the amount I did with France, with Sweden, with England, even the amount I did there is a little too much maybe. Like, I think Habsburg adding the two towns there is probably about as far as adversaries really want to go barring extenuating circumstances. I put in the caveat, there's always extenuating circumstances. But having too much plastic on the board, especially with something like France, which makes you lose if you run out of towns, you know, it creates this immense difficulty spike on turn one, two when I'd much rather have something like a Habsburg's influx of, okay, you're doing all right, you got things under control. All right, you've got this all under control. Bam, okay, now you have another problem to deal with. You know, that is, I think, not a like massively better dynamic, but a slightly better dynamic. I like it a little more. And the only reason is that it's a little harder to pull off. Like you need that reminder card in the deck. Okay, do this thing at this time. First playthrough player is going to be like, oh yeah, there's a thing which is happening. It's not <laughs> as obvious. So I know majors can be used by literally any spirit and of course players are going to probably go with one whose elements share with their own similarly related elements but have you ever implemented a major into the ratio of cards to help someone what i mean by this is there are some cards that i have found in the deck when i look through the first time like oh this is perfect for so and so this is so and so's ultimate like storm swap john's like get rid of raging storm storm <laughs> Raging Storm who? <laughs> so the answer to the two questions which you phrased, even though they sounded like the same question, is no and yes, respectively. I've never added a major that I can think of. I might be lying, in which case, like, you know, Ted or one of the playtesters can correct me. <laughs> I can't recall adding a major specifically to buff a particular spirit, to be like, oh, this is going to help this spirit out the way that I was thinking, like, oh, having blight movement effects on plant animal cards will help sharp fangs out. Mm -hmm. There wasn't an equivalent of that in the major deck. But I do use spirits to brainstorm majors and majors to brainstorm spirits. Mm -hmm. Where I will think, oh, given the spirit, like, what would be this spirit's kind of like ultimate attack in a fighting game or an anime? Yeah. And for lightning, one obvious answer is Towns of Lightning. Thematically, that's spot on. Elementally, it's spot on. Effect-wise, it's pretty good. But gameplay-wise, it is really expensive. That tends to be a problem for lightning. So it's like, oh, okay, all right. So, yeah, okay, lightning could totally have another ultimate. That's fine. A Storm Swath actually was back in original playtesting. It just got cut because, you know, it was one of many major powers, which kind of came Came in, played around for a while, ended up being cut for, I think, Elemental Balance, some other reason mm. like that. Mm. Or maybe it was because there's been, <laughs> there's a mechanic which Storm Swath kind of uh, works around, which is choose a target land, do a particular thing in every land from the origin all the way to the target. Whoa. And we tried having that in Jagged Earth. And once we got to the like second go round on the exceptions for the example case in the rules page, I'm like, you know, this is for like three cards which have survived this. It <laughs> is not, not worth a page of rules. Because <laughs> there's all these exceptions. Like, what do you do if you're playing Finder or Shadows, which can ignore range? What happens if you measure range and cross back over yourself? It was like almost as much headache as the rules for triggered actions, except without the massive game-wide design space payoff. So it was just not worth doing. So a couple of powers, Storm Swath and Sunset's Fire Flow Across the Land both work around that by having an effect in an adjacent land. So that gets you a sum of the same feel of this isn't contained to one place, it's going from here to there. I just pulled Power Storm for Lightning anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> Power Storm is also awesome. Love Power Storm. 
Thunder Speaker's got wrapped in wings of sunlight, vigor breaking dawn, trees and stone. That's the pull apart of base and branch and claw because I needed to keep elemental balance between the two sets. And most of the animal minors and majors, the ones with animal elements, mm -hmm. deal with enfeeblement or sort of territoriality on the part of the invaders. Many of them deal with sort of the biological nature or humanity of the Dahan, mm -hmm. be it healing or increasing health or that kind of thing. And all the others deal with like disease and beasts and stuff. <laughs> And all those had to go into Branch of Claw, no choice right. about it. It was actually an incredible effort. I had to do major overhauls on the minor power deck in order to avoid having big elemental skews and getting any Dahan affecting minor powers of the Branch of Claw miners at all, because a naive pulling apart would have just been like, nope, sorry. Yeah. But that's why there's all these majors which deal with Dahan in the base game and why subsequent sets have diluted a bit. When I went to play some games with a core set with friends after it came out, I'm like, wow, getting major pulls with Thunder Speaker is... Because you pull two cards when you gain power. Yeah. So you can kind of like just fish for like wrapped yeah. wings of sunlight and be like, all right, game one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was not specifically for Thunderspeaker. Okay. That wasn't like, oh yeah, Thunderspeaker should be awesome in the core game. That was, <laughs> oh, this power needs to go someplace. And if I try and swap it with something, then the thing gets swapped with is going to tell the players to add disease and they're not going to know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? Well, Thunderspeaker is clearly in need of some additional love. They definitely need that balancing power level thing because they're just totally weak. I just wish Manifestation of Power and glory was stronger. I know. It just does not in any way deliver the <laughs> If only Manifestation of Power and Glory could be automatically repeated by voluntarily sinking an island board. Yeah. That, <laughs> there, there we go. There you go. There it is. I was curious. Obviously, now that Spirit Island has been out for multiple years, and it's been a, I would say, very much a success. On BGG, on the hotness list, it got as high as I think. Yeah, hotness is a hype list. It's very much like one yeah. that's going eyeballs right now. It maxed hotness a bunch of times. Yeah. But either way, given the success that it's had, obviously it's very flattering and it's very encouraging when something that you've worked on for so many years, for so long, is getting enjoyment, is causing happiness and whatnot. That's good. That's great. But regardless of what other people thought about it, when you were designing this game and when it was coming all together, did it feel any more special or any more unique slash different from any other game that you designed? Like, could you tell that this one was going to be different or was it just as a surprise that, hey, well, okay, sweet. I'm glad it's doing great, but I didn't think it was going to do this great. I did expect it to have the depth of appeal that it did to the people who really loved it. That was not a surprise. I was pleasantly floored by the breadth of appeal. That mm -hmm. made me super happy and was not something I was anticipating. It benefited a lot from the extra long development cycle, partly because that helped make the game better, but also because I think that the market for a heavier co-op was much bigger in 2015-2017 than it was when I started work on it in 2012. Mm. The other half is, did it feel special to me? It felt special to me for other reasons. It felt special because it was my first design where I tried to go really intensely thematic. And so both on a sort of raw amount of work level, like I just poured in a lot more hours and effort and thought on this one than I did on most of my other prototypes. So there's the like, I have spent time and effort on this. I am more invested in it. Mm -hmm. There's also, I enjoy world building. It's one reason I game master and enjoy game mastering when I play RPGs. And so creating a setting at a place and character Characters. I just enjoy making stuff. And so there's that level of fulfillment. And because it is thematically rich, it offers that at a different and perhaps deeper level than a less thematic game would. 
finally, it was more special and always has been because it's a game with something to say. Mm -hmm. It existed to highlight slash lampshade slash point a big neon sign at, hey, as an industry, we as board game designers and board game consumers are sort of thoughtlessly using colonialism as a theme without any critical observation of what it actually was, which was mm. horrific. Like I've been doing reading recently towards hopeful eventual Dahan-centric expansion. It's been one of my things I've been doing over this winter. And I have had literally to pace myself and go slow and budget out time for self-care because this was horrendous in the abstract. Like I knew that. Hopefully everybody knows that. If not, colonization was and continues to be horrendous. But reading about the details of a horrendous thing is even more horrendous because like, you know, human imagination makes it even more so. It puts a face to it, or if not a face, then names and details. And because of that, because it's a game with something to say, I have always wanted it to do better so that it can say what it has to say and get out there. So I've always sort of hoped that it would do well so that it might be able to maybe make somebody aware of something they weren't aware of or notice something they hadn't. Like maybe they go to play another game which comes out about colonialism and they look at the ships and they think in the back of their head like, huh, the Dahan really wouldn't be happy to see those. Or, huh, maybe that's the enemy. There's a lot of defaults and assumptions which I feel mean challenging. And so I kind of hoped it would succeed in order to challenge them. Mm. Well spoken, sir. Yeah. I'm not sure well, if you've seen Princess Bride or not. It's a good movie. I don't like the game, board game, sorry. <laughs> Prospero Hall is a fine dude, okay? <laughs> uh, it was a fine board game. All right, my question. <laughs> Did you intend or expect Spirit Island to become so popular with true solo gamers where they literally just play one spirit? It's not cooperative at all. It's like one spirit, one board, and that's it. Because it's huge. Yeah, it is. Gets lots of love on the Solo Gaming Guild and BGG, which I appreciate a lot. Shout out to the Solo Gaming Guild. Y'all are awesome. It wasn't something I explicitly expected. Like, developing for one-player play was always sort of just there. Like, you can play at one player. It's something that some people enjoyed, and I knew that. So, okay, sure. Like, there's no reason it shouldn't scale down. Mm. I always kept it in mind, but never as a specific focus. It was always just, yeah, like, it's going to say on the box it can do this, so it should do this and do it without, like, too many super hacks. Like, some games just don't scale down that way, and they need a sort of dedicated special solo mode that's no shade on them because some games are just the way they're designed that they need that but because spirit island didn't specifically need it and was able to work with just the simple tweaks around like well if it says another spirit you got to be able to do something with it you know i tried other stuff like instead of the normal effect you get an energy or instead of that you get another card i tried those but they were like bigger changes and didn't work as well so it seemed simpler to just be able to self-target so mostly it's like yeah i'll play solo sometimes when i play test but okay if i'm playing for fun i don't usually do true solo games my preferred player count tends to be two to six. Wait, uh, solo? Just you playing six spirits? No, 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 no. My preferred oh. player count tends to be with at least one other actual was going big brain on us. No, no, no. But, uh, <laughs> oh, no. I that one player that once. did 24 spirits by himself. Did yeah. you see that? Yes. Oh, jeez. Oh, there have been multiple. Multiple people have done it. Like, there was the first on the Discord, and then somebody else did it, and then... Mm -hmm. Doing like oh, yeah. two days. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I play a lot of solo, both true solo and double-headed solo, because I do it for testing. But if I want to play spirit island for fun then i will play with another actual human being okay i agree with that i like playing with other people there's something about the synergy of just playing by yourself two-handed then i'm just like always thinking of both spirits so that's cool i'm like cooperating with myself it's super neat puzzly like that i really enjoy yeah. but i get enough of it while i'm play testing so true i don't really need more of it in my day-to-day -day gaming life right on one thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about when Greater Than Games just was walking by and happened to see your game and I'm like, hey, what's this? And that's kind of how it all started. One thing I was kind of curious 
that reminded me of was in a lot of ways, in my personal opinion, and that's all it is, my personal opinion, Spirit Island does have a few similarities to other products that are in greater than games line of games, whether they be Galactic Strike Force or Sentinels of the Multiverse, which I don't know if you know those games or are completely familiar with all the things within them. And so I was wondering... How much creative liberty did you have as a designer for Spirit Island while working with Greater Than Games? Because I see similarities from game to game, yet your involvement is just with Spirit Island, not necessarily Galactic Strike Force or Sentinels. No, no, I had nothing to do with those projects. Sentinels is entirely Christopher and Adam. Paul was also involved, but I think it was more the business side of things. They have a whole podcast about it and they can tell you all the details, but I wasn't there for them, so I don't know all the details. But right. So if I can boil down the okay. question so that it's yeah. a little bit easier. Yeah, there's many questions yeah. there. Which question. Yeah. <laughs> so you as a designer, how much of this game came from you and how much did they influence the game from a design standpoint? So you have an idea, you want to do a thing, but they are publishing it. How much influence did they have slash do they have? They give me an immense amount of creative control and I'm incredibly grateful about that because they could tell that I sort of had a vision for the game and so they let me drive that process. The sort of traditional stereotypical model for a game being signed with a publisher is like you sign the game, you send the files, you do some collaborative work, but then at some point you hand off and they start doing internal development and they may come back to you. You know, this is more what like for science looked like where mm. Gray Fox would come back to me and say, hey, we ran into this thing in playtesting. We're thinking of solving it this way. What do you think about that? And I go, oh yeah, that looks great. Consider this maybe. And they go, okay, sure. And they move forward on it. With Spirit Island instead, I was the one with the master files. I was the one making the call for what to update, adding new content, that kind of thing. Don't get me wrong. Both Ted Bessonis, who is a friend and designer, and Christopher Bedell, who is head of development for Greater Than Games. I was consulting with both of them. I had weekly calls with Christopher. I was going over to Ted's house. We were talking about this stuff all the time, and they definitely had their hand in. But Greater Than Games was great about giving me sort of final authority on, okay, like not on a business level, what is in is and what is out. Like it was their call and the right one to tell me like, we really think that like Branch and Claw should be pulled out. But in terms of like, which spirits do you think should be in for Jagged Earth was not something which they dictated to me. It was a question they asked me. They were very great about that. Um, That's awesome. You know, and obviously they had opinions and we had a meeting about it and like, sure. let's discuss this and make sure, sure it makes sense. But they've been very good. Same thing is true on mechanics for developing the core game. Like Christopher would come to me and say, hey, Eric, I really think that this thing needs to change, but it wasn't him laying down terms. It was him talking to me as a designer and saying what he saw and me respecting that truth of what he saw. So yeah, no, all those things in general, greater than games doesn't want me to talk too much about internal process, but I can talk at least about mm -hmm. playtesting. Like for playtesting, I'm in there in the weeds looking at feedback and going, oh, okay. You know, now is this always going to be the case? I don't know. Like there may be a time where it's like, oh, I need to, you know, have other people do some more of the heavy lifting on later iterations so that I can, you know, start working on the next big thing for Han or whatnot. But thus far, I've been incredibly involved at all stages, for the mechanics at least, and the thematics. The art I was less involved with. I was involved at a very early stage for sort of overall direction. But then after we got past that and some initial core spirit concepts, I was not involved in any of the details specific at all in terms of like- The, the art, art is incredible in the game. Where can I get my merch? I want a light- <laughs> I want a river shirt. <laughs> I want a big wallpaper of Starlight and Mist. <laughs> Talk to Greater Than Games, they're the 
ones who would either do that or license it. As the designer, I have some use rights. So like I have a Lightning Swift Strike t-shirt, which I made myself. I'm but so jealous. No joke. <laughs> when I saw that picture of you with it, I started looking up like, where can I get one? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, if it's something you want, totally let greater than games, like do it nicely. Don't pester them. But, <laughs> like they know games, they're fans. They like Spirit mm. Island. It's just that for something to make sense, they need to be like, okay, this isn't like we're going to do a print run of 10 shirts and satisfy 10 people and spend a huge amount of time and energy on it. They just need yeah. to know that it will work as a company to be able to pay a paycheck to somebody to spend that much effort on it. And I think historically, like I think I've done t-shirts for one of their other games, but they didn't do it themselves. They licensed it out to somebody else who was more of an expert in t-shirts or something like gotcha. that. You mentioned oh, yeah. Strike Force, which did remind me. There's another game which Greater Than Games did, Sentinel's Tactics, which I've only played a handful of times, but it was indirectly involved in Spirit Island because I saw Sentinel's Tactics at PAX East one year. And that was right around the time that I was doing some other changes. The dropping sacred sites as a separate piece had just happened. We'd moved to two separate presence tracks. And I sat down to get the demo of Sentinels and I got the hand of cards and every one of them was unique to that superhero. And I played that and another thematic game, I think, which one it was escapes me, but I remember Sentinels. And while I was musing on later, I'm like, that thematic concentration was really good. Spirit Island wants that. Because up until then, mm -hmm. every spirit had had three unique power cards and three standard power cards, which were cards every single spirit got. There was an hmm. add a presence power card, there was add a sacred site or maybe a presence power card, and there was a send dreams to the Dahan and the Dahan move power card. And everyone had those three and they worked the same for everybody. Huh. And I was getting rid of sacred sites as a piece and the question was, okay, but that's one of those three standards. Do I just drop it? Do I replace it with something else? So it was already in flux. Hmm. And I'm like, you know, I think the right answer is to just drop them entirely because they're a point of non-distinctiveness among the spirits. It's okay for spirits to do the same thing. They're obviously interacting with the same game systems. But if you're staring at a hand of six cards and three of them always do the same thing, that dilutes the unique feel. So Sentinel Tactics was a part of the boost that that PAX East gave to, no, make everything unique, Eric. That is the better path. And, you know, <laughs> So there's that, definitely. And then that turned into growth, which worked out fantastically. Right on. It solved other problems, too, in that before that, sort of the standard baseline number of card plays to sort of get going was three, because you needed like two to do stuff and one for infrastructure. But it's harder to manage the game once you get up to like four or five. So it made sort of getting better a little constrained. Dropping down to four meant that like you had to end up only four cards instead of six. It made it easier to learn. It meant that sort of baseline card plays was only two instead of three, made the game easier to track. It was good on many different levels. That's good. When Jagged Earth came out, it was just like so much content, so many spiritual. Like we thought potentially this was the last expansion. And obviously it's not. You've talked about the Dahan. Is it difficult to like create or think of new content? Or is this like just something you're passionate about? You're loving Spirit Island, love making new content for? There are parts of making new content publishable, which are very difficult. But the actual initial like, hey, come up with an idea. That? That's mostly just lots of fun. Okay. If I'm making a new power card, I need to make sure it fits elementally into the decks and that the effects, there's a certain amount of like, don't skew the distribution of different effect types so that your major power deck is now 99% defense or something ridiculous like that. For a spirit, I want to make sure that it doesn't overlap too much in feel with existing spirits. And if there's overlap mechanically or elementally, then like make sure the other parts of the spirit sort of highlight the differences so that both of them feel different. For an event card, I need to make sure that like, oh, okay, I don't overly dilute the amount of Dahan defense which shows up because the Dahan can, mm. in fact, you know, show up and defend their own lands, you know, every so often and they should be able to do that. So there's all these auxiliary factors which can make getting a thing right very tricky. 
But in terms of, hey, it's time to make a thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. <laughs> Dude, how do you juggle all these things at once? Being a dad, being a hot chocolate fanatic, being a game designer, being a gamer, being a Dance Dance Revolution <laughs> phenom. With great difficulty. Uh, no, that's <laughs> With a lot of help is the honest answer. I am very fortunate in that I have local family. My parents live mm. one town over. My sister and brother-in-law live in the same town as me. And mm. they helped out a lot with like, hey, we have a newborn and oh goodness, how do we do this? giving us breaks by coming over and playing with the kid or later kids so that we could like you know get showers and do laundry having done this and having seen my other friends who are parents who don't have any local family like why did we invent this giant push to the atomic family like who came up with that idea ah, i don't know so support from family has been great my wife and i made the conscious decision to like okay we're going to hire sitting help for eric to be able to get game design in and this was not a financial decision this was in fact despite the financials because like the expected return on time for board game design for somebody who has published zero or one fairly modest board game design is not equal to the amount of money you pay a babysitter. So it's not a money investment. It was a combination of this is a thing I love doing. I'm passionate about. I don't want to completely fall out of it. I want to like do this as a form of R&R. Second of all, it will allow me to continue being in the field professionally. Like it means I don't just drop off the radar for 10 years and then reappear. And third of all, I actively wanted to be a stay-at-home dad. That's why we did it. In some ways, it would have been much more cost efficient to have our kids in childcare in terms of a money per hour basis. But I wanted to be there. I wanted to be the dad. And and it allowed me to do that. And I found I was correct in guessing that I enjoyed that stay-at-home parenting a lot more when I was doing it like 30 hours a week instead of 60 hours a week. So having that help, having the family in the sitting sort of let me get a really good work-life parenting balance, which is a three-body problem of the work-life balance problem. So I can still feel it. Like I still like, I see my fellow designers who do not have quite as many obligations, like zipping through all the things. But these days I can go, oh, no, they're zipping through all the things. Like, because I got limited time because I'm a parent and that's okay. And mm -hmm. because I have limited time, because I get to work on more Spirit Island, which is awesome. Like, yes. I feel so lucky and grateful for that. It is so few games which do well enough to support not just one expansion, but multiple expansions expansions. So getting the chance to play yeah. more in this universe and in this system is something I am deeply grateful for. Speaking of work, life and balance and everything, since the pandemic, I've been working from home because my company sent everyone home and I've been since working from home. So I actually got to play Spirit Island more because of the digital version on Steam. So I've kind of had like a tab going. I'm doing my work. Yep. If anyone from work is listening, I'm still doing my job. But for reports <laughs> running, I can like do a quick slow phase, you know? Yep. I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on like the digital version on Steam? Do you play it or do you like how it turned out? I really like how it turned out. Yeah, it's really enjoyable. I enjoy playing it. I don't play super often mostly for the same reason that i don't solo play spirit island super often like because it's a very faithful implementation of spirit island they're really good mm -hmm. about that it feels like i'm playing solo spirit island but that's not really my jam so i do it okay. sub there's no setup there's no teardown it handles all the game logic for you that makes it more yeah. convenient i play the digital version way more than i play solo physical version for fun and i just like you know the background music and the like interwoven themes from all the spirits yeah. you're playing get like pulled into the background in neat ways and that's cool yeah no i'm super pleased it's come out the folks at handle Abra 
are great. They have been super good about uh, working with me and the fact and everything else to make sure everything is working right. So yeah, no, it's really neat. They've already like implemented the blight change and they took out some of those events like Strange Madness. Like you must be yep. really working hand in hand with them. Oh yeah, yeah. I Although I blew it on the blight change. There's parts of my brain which are still used to like the days when I was the sole, you know, during dev, like ultimately it was like, okay, there were people who needed to know like, oh, there's new materials. But ultimately it's like, if I want to change the rules, I can. I wasn't thinking like, oh, by the way, there's this video game out there and they kind of like to know about it if you're going to change the rules all of a sudden, which meant that I changed the rules and like that day they did a major release. If I just told them 24 hours ahead oh. of time, it's a really minor change. So I totally dropped the ball on that one. That was utterly my fault. <laughs> Sorry, Handelabra. And, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's in so, there now with the branch and claw release. It's in there yeah, now. So yeah, it's all yeah. Good. Oh, it's all good. Yeah, they've been extremely responsive and very good about making things work like they should. It's a tough game because there's like, if you're playing Three Spirits, there's a lot of things you need to deal with. When I signed the contract, I asked Creative Thing Games, like, do you want the digital rights? Because if not, then I'd like to try and find something. Like, no, no, like, we're having a digital version of Sentinels done and we like the company we're working with. I'm like, okay. And so I'm super pleased to see it done and I'm really impressed yeah. with how they manage the screen real estate. Because I was like, there's a board and there's another board and there's like multiple hands of cards. And how are you going to do all that? And they've done it. Yeah. And tablets. I can't remember. Are they bringing it to phones? I think they were bringing yeah. it to the phone. I think I That'd be really are, dangerous like, for me. Really oh, dangerous. <laughs> I mean, phones have admittedly gotten bigger, but a lot of pinching, like zooming yeah. and pinching. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> I was just curious, do you have any favorite spirits at the moment or okay. ones that you keep playing or going back to? You said sometimes low complexities when you're doing newer games, but is there a spirit you keep coming back to? I was curious. On BGG, I log my non-play tests. I log my games for fun. And after like, I don't know, 30 or 40 of those, I look back, I'm like, oh, which spirits do I play most frequently? And it turns out low complexity are my most frequent spirits, but that's almost entirely due to playing with new players. If you pull that right. out, then it's basically an even spread. I enjoy playing all of them. Really? But I do have spirits of the moment. Like right now, I'm kind of looking for to playing Fractured Days because I haven't played them in like a really long time and I kind of want to dive back in. But if you'd asked me two weeks ago, it would have been Starlight. But then I got a great Majors build Starlight in the other time and oh yeah, that was super satisfying. Except I was barely able to get anywhere. I was like at the edge of my board. It's like, oh, can't reach with my awesome power to help where needed. Oh. Have you done the no reclaim Starlight? It's a fun oh. trip. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yep. No, no reclaim builds, maybe. <laughs> no reclaim starlight was sort of a thing kind of like growth to spam downpour in testing. It's like, it is totally fine if this is a valid strategy. It's weird, it's wacky. People will like discover it and have fun discovering it, and that's great. Yeah. Or hear about it and be like, what? No, that can't be right. And try it and be like, it works. <laughs> it's fine if it works. In both cases, we didn't want it to be like, this is the best strategy, because if it's dominant, then people feel like they're shoehorned and doing the, the weird, wacky thing. And yeah. that's not so good. But in both cases, the testing indicated like, no, not dominant, like probably viable, but you know, okay. it's fun. So say you're not doing a teaching game, you're just like playing amongst experienced players. What is your favorite difficulty range or what do you like to play at higher, lower, medium? I usually play around seven to nine. That's gone up slightly. It used to be a touch lower, but I've gotten better over the years. Okay. So I tend to like games which offer a credible threat of losing if we screw up. But if we play well, we're probably going to win like, you know, 90% plus victory. Okay. But like, if we really make some dubious decisions, then it'll be like, oh, maybe that's more of a 50-50 shot of victory or, you know, that sort of thing. So that tends to be around range seven to nine. Seven leans more towards the win side. Nine leans more towards the oops 
somebody made a mistake and now we're looking at triple blight cascades. <laughs> That's the rough range. Okay. I like pain, so I like not knowing we're going to win in 10. Please, thank you. Yep, yep. <laughs> No, that's fine. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I wanted granular difficulty was because yeah. I really wanted people to be able to customize their difficulty level beyond easy mode, hard mode. Right. Russia was hard, Eric. Woof. Me and Ryan were fighting our wits and at the <laughs> Russia game. Russia that's and Habsburg and Scotland all got made once I knew that there were players out there like handling level yeah. six all the time. Mm. Well, clearly, we need to up the dial a little. Uh, <laughs> we uh, felt it with Russia. Doing double adversaries, both six. Yeah. Although the double sixes, it turns out, it's kind of like speed running in video games. They're like stretching everything to the max, finding all of the super edge cases. Like, okay, this yeah. is the best spirit for this. This yeah. is the power you always right. do. Like, you know, finding those specific points. Mm. But people are beating like level six adversaries and above with like, eh, give me a spirit. Like the challenge on Reddit. Did you see that one? The give me a difficulty 10 setup. Yes. You the spirits yes. that I cannot win. And dear I did a comment. Comment. My comment uh, was fractured and finder versus France. Oh, that was so. you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> they uh, said they won it though. So I'm like, wow. Congrats. On the thematic board. Last I looked, they were at like seven victorious challenges and one not. So yeah. <laughs> That's insane. That's insane. Before we go, I really was curious about something. Sure. Because I vocalized this in the past. I thought this was just the coolest thing. Like, just the coolest thing. And that was the cameo that Spirit Island makes within Sentinels of the Multiverse. And I had to ask if you were aware of that, if you'd seen it, and what your thoughts were on that. Because that's just the coolest thing. I love seeing crossover events, just in general, like when you love a thing and you love another thing. And then those two things have a thing and you're like, they know each other one. Like, <laughs> like this is those moments of pure fan service sometimes that I just geek out. Like it's just an echo chamber of geek outingness. I'm like, yes. And so I was wondering. Reverberating awesome. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was curious if you've been made aware of that yet. Oh, totally. Yeah. Christopher checked in with me beforehand. He wanted to make sure I was okay with it. He was fantastic. He knows like, you know, as a creator, not just on a mechanical level, but on sort of a thematic level, I have an attachment to the world which I have built on. Mm -hmm. And so he checked in with me for like, hey, like, you know, would you mind if we did this? And I thought about it and talked with him and said, basically, as long as I don't want the one way reference to necessarily be the other, right. which is fine. Mm -hmm. You know, Sentinels is a comic book multiverse. And so they can canonically have references to Spirit Island without the reverse necessarily being true. Yeah. And so it is still like, you know, it has never been established one way or the other, whether in the canon of Spirit Island, is it the same multiverse right. as Sentinels? There's a scenario where they, Baron Blade comes in like, yeah. <laughs> there is no data on that. I lean a little bit against it just because of differing tenor, different tone right. to the games. But it is entirely in keeping with a superhero game to, you know, pull in references to other things. Right. And so I'm yeah. like, you want to do this? I think that would be awesome. It came up in conversation. I can't remember if he initiated it or I initiated it, but it came up in conversation well, well before it happened. I say, ooh, that could be kind of neat. Like I saw him like, oh, <laughs> I, I, I feel happy and awesome. So yeah, that was fantastic. That's awesome. so great. John, I swear we're going to make that happen. We have this whole thing. John hasn't played Sentinels on the Multiverse yet. I haven't played it yet. I think it's fantastic. So I think that should be like the first place we go to. Although it's not the easiest environment to fight in, but the cool factor is just too heavy not to be like, go for it. I've never actually played Sentinels in that environment. 
I have seen really? the cards, and I played Sentinels, so I know what they yeah. do. I was going to say, have I, you seen the cards and stuff? I've not seen physical versions. I've seen the digital images. Yeah. But that's not true. I created the game's headquarters. River so has, like, games. six eyes as opposed to, like, two. So it's, like, so close, but <laughs> not quite. <laughs> well, if I recall correctly, there's a lore reason. There's something about, like, a destroyer and a place and things happening. I can't remember all the details. I like Nolan Nasser's River better. That's my favorite. <laughs> the, like, there's awesome lore details and i knew them but i was told them like right. four years ago so i no longer okay. remember them yeah they call it the nexus of the void so technically yeah, it's not identical it. so you know when i opened the box i saw oh nexus of the void mm -hmm. you know hearing just the name that doesn't scream to me spirit island so i'm like dbd we do okay biomes that's a cool thing okay um okay hello of what <laughs> is that coincidence? Wait, hold on, no. hold on. No, I'm looking at another card. Like, wait, is that wait. a snake? <laughs> I look on the back and I see there's sands, there's yeah. mountains, there's wetlands and jungles. I'm like, no, hold on, hold on. Then I get to the bottom and I see slumbering serpent. I'm like, uh -huh. what? No. <laughs> and like, oh, when this card enters play, remove eight health from it. Each time a spirit or a biome enters, this card regains one HP. So it's like already he absorbing has... essence. Yeah. <laughs> Is he absorbing <laughs> essence and growing? What the <laughs> heck? Then you have reclusive keeper magma's rage. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> yes. What? Ah, that's where I had that echo chamber of awesomeness. So I was just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. That is excellent. And the best sort of like crossover ah. discovery thing. Yes. And I'm so glad that I hadn't heard of it. I got to just discover it without any foreknowledge of what the heck this was. Oh, the first thing I did, I was like, <laughs> dude, Peter, I went to my brother's like, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. Did you look at it? It's like this. And, and, and if you look, look at the armor, it, it's just like this. And I think it's like, it's just syllables just came pouring out of my mouth. Huh. Only like every other sixth was actually a tangible word, but it was so great. That sort of discovery is something I <sighs> love myself. And I try to keep in mind as far as like general, like the experience of opening a game box. Yeah. One of the reasons I didn't want to spoiler a lot of like major powers from Dragon mm. Earth was so you get that I'm opening these powers. I'm opening these powers and maybe I've heard of two or three of them, but there's a lot more than two or three of them. And some of them are going to strike you as, wait, what? Um, <laughs> weave. Uh, I freaking love weave. Yep. Yes. <laughs> as love, a finder player. <laughs> you know, there's a particular nine cost major in Branch and Claw, which probably everybody listening to this podcast knows of, but I'm not going to mention it just in case. And whenever I see a player reading it, watching a player read that card is something I really enjoy because there's this right. incredulity of, wait, what? <laughs> this doesn't do what I think it does, does it? It does. Wait, that so, can't be right. Yeah. In your game with Tim when Laura literally oh, yeah. and just flipped yeah. the board, that particular tile, and just yeah. everything up, and he was just like, yep. what did you just do? <laughs> it's so I feel awesome. like I see videos on Reddit too of like people flipping the board or like destroying <laughs> it. It's such a fun thing. Players love that yep. power. Right. Very memorable. Well, Eric, from the standpoint of a content creator, from the standpoint of a board gamer, as someone who is just simply a fan of Spirit Island, as someone who has committed oh so much time and continues to do so on just one singular board game, to have you featured here to me is like a geek's dream come true. And though my name don't register much on the global scale, you've made my week slash month, maybe even year for being here. So thank you so much thank you so much this thank is kind so of a full circle moment seriously i remember john and i when we started we we're like do you think like anyone's gonna listen to it do you think like <laughs> 
he's going to listen to it. I was going to make my brother listen, which he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of one of those weird moments where I'm like, frankly, I never thought I'd be here. Just simple statement, but I'm so glad that I am. And this is so cool. And Thank you. Words cannot describe as adequately as I could from all of those different things that I am. A gamer, a board gamer, a spirit island player, a content creator, a spirit island content creator. Words can't describe as all of those things, how cool, how fun, how important this is for you to be here. And I hope you had fun here because I sure did. Totally. And just in general, thank you too, because it warms my heart when I see people taking things and enjoying them and then spreading that joy to others. See folks on Reddit saying, you know, they heard your podcast and and the connection, especially during the pandemic, that it brought to them. Just so like I made a thing and it inspired you to do something awesome, which inspired other people to feel connected. Like that's great. That's, that's just so cool. fantastic. So and so, thank um, you for all the information, the peek behind the curtain. That is so yeah. yeah, it's so cool to hear about the design process and how things came together. Cause I didn't know a lot of it. I'm sure the listeners may not have known either. So that's been just mind-blowing to listen to. Yeah, happy to. And like if anybody's ever at a convention and you run into me, feel free to ask questions. I enjoy talking about Spirit Island. I might need you to like buy me a drink or something to keep myself a a hydrated. But yeah, <laughs> I was going to say like the advantage is I drink a little booze, but not a whole lot. So you're probably buying like a soda or a hot chocolate. All right. So a chocolate know. spirit in the works, maybe. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was actually a milestone I marked. Like somebody has bought me a drink in exchange for talking about Spirit Island lore at them. Uh, which <laughs> as I'm concerned as a win-win because I like talking lore anyway. So right they were just being generous. Right on. Well, with all that said, I cannot wait to do this again sometime. And that's yeah. a fun surprise there. This won't oh. be any time. Oh, dun, so dun, dun. we're until... not letting him leave. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, until next room. time. Whenever hey, that... Trapped in the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already looking forward to it whenever that is. So we will catch you guys on the flippity flip. Thank you for listening and editing Ryan. I am so sorry. All right, <laughs> Peace out. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Kindred Spirit Podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to do so. Feel free to visit us on our Instagram and Facebook page. You can find me on our Facebook page at the Kindred Spirit Podcast. To get a hold of John, check out our Instagram page at the KSP123. We look forward to hearing from you and seeing you in future episodes.